This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Hopshop Aberdeen. Hopshop Aberdeen are a local Aberdeen FC supporting business passionate about supplying you with the finest in craft beer. With an extensive range running to over 500 individual lines sourced from the finest breweries in the northeast of Scotland and from all over the world, make Hopshop Aberdeen your first stop. Shop in-store at the West Hill Service Station on Strake Road where, if you fancy yourself as a bit of a barman, you can use their two-tap chilled growler station to pour your own fresh beer, or you can hit them up online at hopshopaberdeen.com. With fast local delivery and next-day UK delivery, you won't have to wait long to crack open a cold one and settle in to watch another Don's victory. Hello and welcome along to this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott and as always I'm joined by Graham Steele and Gavin Baxter. How are we doing guys? Good, thank you. Recording this a few hours after our uh, exit from the League Cup at the hands of Wraith Rovers and I've never been more appreciative of being given free beer so thank you very much to the Hop Shop. <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute. I mean it's another jam-packed episode this week uh, we're going to take a look back at the home leg against Breithablik from last week as the Dons navigate our way through qualifying round three of the Europa Conference League and yet yeah, we're going to review our incredibly disappointing uh, second round League Cup defeat at Starks Park from earlier today and then we're going to look forward to another busy week of action for the Dons we're going to give you an in-depth exclusive insight into our playoff round opponents in Karabag of Azerbaijan with Fuad Alekbarov and we're going to look ahead to our visit to Gorgi in the SPFL Premiership next week. And then we'll round things off with an exclusive interview with the one and only Duncan Shearer. So yeah, before we get started off at the top of the show, you'll have heard uh, our sponsors for this episode today, Hop Shop Aberdeen. We'd like to thank them very much for providing us all with a, a selection of fine beers to drown our sorrows in this evening. It's a, a cheeky little lockdown cream soda pilsner from Brewdog tonight. I'm going to be honest, not one of their finest. Yeah, off the back of the disappointment, I've gone with the tried and trusted uh, Fierce Hazy IPA to uh, to help just get the the memories of Jack Gurr out of my brain. And I'm currently enjoying a Lift and Shift Session Pale Ale from uh, Burnside Brewery, which is not one I had tried before, but I am quite enjoying it. So that's enough of the free shilling for just now, but um, let's start off on a positive note, I think. Let's look back to the, the tie against Braithwick last week. So Aberdeen 2, Braithwick 1. 12th of August, Pataudry Stadium, rounding off an aggregate 5-3 victory for the Dons in qualifying round three of the Europa Conference League. Obviously, started the game with uh, a back three, kind of similar to what we finished up in Iceland. Starting lineup with Lewis, Constantine, McCrory, Galker, Ramsey, McKenzie, Brown, McGeech, Ferguson, Hedges and, and Ramirez. I think we'd probably all agree that the first half was, was a bit of a non-event. Yeah, great atmosphere, but um, as far as the actual football, pretty passive, um, no real danger being caused for ourselves part of they cut us open and perhaps should have scored if it wasn't for a Ross McCrory tackle putting the attacker um just doing enough to put him off we created some chances but yeah I mean it was it felt um almost felt in a way kind of pre-season yeah it was we it was we were flat um but I think we were all saying at half time okay it wasn't quite the the game of football we were looking forward to but on the other hand that was 45 minutes closer to getting through um, which is, you know, all we were really interested in. So it was a bit disappointed. But then 
as he has done um, regularly this season, his time in charge, made the changes at halftime manager, um, and they worked out quite well for us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in a way, I think in a way that first half was kind of probably what we maybe should have expected. I think realistically, you're probably expecting Braitha Blick to try and come out and get an early goal to try and force our force the issue a little bit. Didn't really feel so Braitha Blick necessarily came out as much as maybe we were expecting them to. I think we set up with a bit of a view to try and contain them a little bit as we had done in the in the first leg in Iceland. Uh, but Graham, yeah, you're right. Obviously, the manager not happy with what he saw first half. He makes the changes at halftime, bringing on King Ojo and uh, Conor McLennan, uh, Declan Galkin and, and Dylan McGeoch, the two to make way. I don't think, to be fair to either of the two of them, I don't think they necessarily did anything wrong first half. I think it was purely just a tactical switch. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think it shows real positive intent. I think, as you say, the manager, he said in his post-match interview that he wasn't happy, which is refreshing because at that point, you know, Rethelblick, I don't think we're causing us any issues. Um, a more conservative manager easily could have just sat back and said, things are going the way we want. Um, so let's just keep it going like that. But instead, Glass, yeah, made positive changes. And that was uh, very effective for us to achieving our, our goal of ultimately winning the tie. Yeah, switches it back to, I guess, the formation we've seen a little bit more of us use so far this season, the kind of 4-3-3-4-1-4-1 type type system and what an immediate impact from Ojo when he comes off the bench I mean matter of minutes into the into the second half it's quite quite the transformation isn't it um, from the Ojo that we have seen before to what we're getting this season and uh, I certainly prefer the one this season I mean yeah we spoke about it on episode one and we used Ojo as an example um, and I don't think he was targeted per se and I, I certainly wasn't trying to target him as being the person that this you know this was aimed at but he was very much, I, I felt, the kind of player that Stephen Glass and, and Stephen Gunn were talking about in the Q&A before the season, where you're not going to be handing out necessarily three-year deals to a player like an Ojo coming up from the English English leagues um, any longer if we feel so they're going to block off pathways for, for young players in the first team. But Graham, you're absolutely right. What a transformation from the guy in, in the space of a few weeks. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that's um, been given a chance to stake his claim and He's absolutely done that. Um, we'll come on to this later, but I just kind of wish that some others in the squad um, had the same kind of um, spirit within taking their chances because that's not what happened today. But anyway, we're, we're talking about Thursday. Yeah, so obviously he's just in off the, he comes off the bench, but then a couple of minutes he has gone on a mazy run, not something you'd be expecting from Ojo full stop. Great run, probably, you know, aided a little bit by some absolutely horrendous defending um, on the on the Braith of Blick side. Cuts the ball back in the hedges, nice easy tapping, great stuff, great atmosphere in the red shed where we were, obviously. At that point, Dons are well on top, I think, but Braithwaite like, then started to kind of come into the game a little bit more. I felt that they tried to start to expose the areas in and behind our fullbacks, especially in behind Jack McKenzie. And then it kind of felt at the time for me out in nowhere, Aolson sweeps in an equaliser, suddenly ties back in the balance again. And then for the next five, ten minutes, it, it got a bit of squeaky bum time again. Yeah, it was um, one of them. I think after the goal, I mean, let's just say that for those of us in the red shed, what a bounce when that goal went in. You would not expect, uh, what what did that make the tie? 4-2? Yeah. Oh, so you wouldn't expect a goal like that against a team from Iceland, a part-time team from Iceland, to uh, register such an amazing bounce. But, I mean, that was up there uh, with anything I've had experienced in the last uh, few years. Maybe this is just me. I kind of took my eye off the game a little bit. Just kind of enjoyed the atmosphere. And suddenly you look up and the ball's in the back of our net. And suddenly it's like, oh, this isn't quite so easy. Yeah, I was guilty of um, 
I was just kind of enjoying being back at Pataudry. It was good to see, you know, a decent crowd, people enjoying themselves. You're, you know, picking out familiar faces that you've not seen for a long, long time. And then, yeah, it just, the ball's in the back of the net. You think, oh, this has gone from being, you know, comfortable, 4-2 up, thoroughly enjoying my evening to, oh, no, <laughs> we've seen this before. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't go down that route. I think we were just too busy waiting for the main stand to give us a song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe the players are a bit guilty about that as well, perhaps, that, you know, they get to 4-2, maybe there's a bit of a feeling that job's done because they haven't really done a huge amount in the first half. Maybe they take the foot off the gas a little bit and are kind of enjoying the the atmosphere as well and we nearly get punished again Braithwaite came really close to to, to capitalising on some really slack play between Andy Constantine and Lewis Ferguson Joe Lewis makes a fine first save but it's a you know it's an open goal basically for the for the lad following and he blazes it straight into the, the Dick Donald and basically we go up the pitch and it's another fine goal from from Ryan Hedges yeah it's an absolutely excellent finish considering he'd had a, he had played a good game and he'd had a couple of chances uh, prior to scoring um, that was by no means the easiest of the chances he had, uh, but excellent, especially when you see you, know, you see the replays and the angle, sort of looking from the Richard Donald end, down the way he hits it and the way it just goes in the net was, uh, yeah, really, really good. And again, that just settled everyone down. And to be fair, the atmosphere, you know, sort of fans and stuff like that were still uh, in good form when it was one all. But as soon as that was in, yeah, the place just kind of took off and everyone's, I think at that point, thinking, yes, uh, we're going to do this. Probably his hardest chance of the night, and he takes it with such a plum. Um, it just shows the quality the guy has, and hopefully he can uh, continue that on. Hopefully he sees his future at Aberdeen in the next few years as well. Yeah, and I think one of the, the great things about the build-up to the goal as well is the interplay between Ojo and Hedges on the wing to begin with. A couple of nice touches from Ojo. Love the little flick uh, back to Ojo from Hedges. Crossing from Ojo's decent enough. I think Ramirez takes a pretty bad first touch in reality. He's trying to bring that one down for himself, but it falls into the path of Hedges. And fair play to Hedges, he's followed his pass. He's followed his way back into the box there. A lot of players would have made that flick to Ojo and just kind of stood there. It's a fine finish. And from that point on, we really just saw that game out pretty professionally after that, I thought. What you say about Ramirez there, one man's bad touch is another man's amazing assist. So, no, absolutely. I think all things being equal, again, we can't be you know, too upset about conceding three goals in Europe when you get five. 5-3 uh, for the second round in a row um, obviously a scoreline we quite like in Europe at the moment um, get ourselves into the playoff round which is great great stuff for the for the club and hopefully we can try and go one, for, one, one round further and obviously we'll touch on Carabag later on in, in the show but we're going to come on to looking at the, the defeat at Starks Park in a minute but let's give the manager some credit for again showing a willingness to change things up when he felt he had to um, at halftime against Braithwaite yeah, absolutely. He's shown uh, so far that he is not afraid of making changes, even when, you know, the game is not necessarily um, going away from us. You know, as I said, we were still in a pretty comfortable position at halftime, but he has shown this willingness to adapt both personnel and systems to be positive. And I think that's something we've been looking for as Aberdeen fans for the last few years. Yeah, I agree that it's good that he's making the changes. And I think from my point of view, the changes the manager makes are influencing the outcome of the matches. I mean, that, that's more than one game now where whether it's been halftime, wherever he's changed out the personnel and we've maybe looked to do something different. And, you know, then we've we've come away with a victory. Um, I know we keep harking back to previous regime, but previously it just felt like it was a case of get fresh legs on rather than fresh ideas. Uh, so it's encouraging that the manager is actually able to 
to change a match in our favour instead of just get some extra guys on to run around. But you know, it's the same problematic system or whatever that we're we're trying to play. So so far so good, generally speaking. Um, and we'll see if he can continue that throughout the season. I guess as well, you've got to praise the attitude of the guys that come off the bench as well. You know, you saw Ojo coming off the bench, did really well. I thought Connor McLennan as well was excellent when he came off the bench at halftime. Thought he really added a little bit of something different to, to the team as well at that point. Um, and, and that's a, a positive sign as well, because I think that shows that players feel that if they come in and play well, that they've got an opportunity to actually stay in the, in the team. Hopefully this, they're not just being brought on as like a token substitute and they'll be there again back on the bench in a week's time. Yeah, um, and obviously McLennan, I think, should have scored. He had a really good opportunity uh, when he was through with the keeper. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'm hoping this will be a good season for Conor McLennan. I'm convinced there's a player there. I just don't think any of us have really seen it consistently. So hopefully he can uh, he can keep up his decent form uh, over the course of the season. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, I think it was also good. It was quite funny because I felt that there's a lot of people who've always said, I think that Glass seemed maybe quite a quiet kind of character and maybe not somebody you could expect being a manager. So I think we probably all quite enjoyed the fact he got right riled up by the Braitha Blick manager and really gave him back some with uh, with interest a little bit during the game and uh, made a couple of cheeky wee digs back as well in the pre in the post-match as well, which was quite interesting. It's one of these I don't think you've ever imagined Stephen Glass would really get involved in, but... Again, I felt it was actually quite a positive thing to see, actually, that he's willing to kind of dig in and he's going to stand up for himself and for the team as well. Yeah, I think you can see from the uh, the personalities that he's brought in, um, you know, Scott Brown is the obvious um, reference to make here that we're, that we're building a group that is not going to get pushed around uh, by anyone. And we spoke to Duncan Shear about this and we spoke about whether he saw um, Stephen Glass becoming a manager and what he said was that, you know, Glass was a very unassuming and quiet type, so... Yeah, a surprise to see him. Well, him. A surprise to see him at the very, to say the very least, him. Uh, yes, there was some lip reading going on, and uh, if that's what's been said, then uh, yeah, who'd have thought that our manager would be taking notes out of the Danny Dyer playbook? <laughs> I wonder as well. I mean, does he maybe just get caught up in the atmosphere as well, potentially? Because I mean, it, it, let's not pretend otherwise. It was a fantastic atmosphere at Pataudry on on Thursday night. Probably one of the best I can remember for a, a very long time. Evening nights are always special, but um, in a situation like that, you've taken all the context of a relatively full house, um, all the emotion that went into the game, winning the game. You know, had a bit of a, the game had a bit of a spike uh, that was brought on by the comments of the Bethlehem manager last week, and then you know we played some good stuff. There was a lot to enjoy as a supporter. So yeah, I think it's perfectly valid that Glass could easily have been uh, caught up in caught up in things and. I'm sure that the team and the management are were aware of what uh, the Brittlebook manager had said the week prior and uh, maybe just given a bit back there, which is, uh, as a fan, you know, not something I'm going to complain about. You touched on something there, Gavin, which is quite interesting, obviously saying about nearly a full house. I think there was just slightly over 15,000 in the ground on Thursday night, which is probably about 3,000 short of where I think they said the operational capacity was going to be. That was, I think, set around 18. And there's been a lot of chat on social media and everything in, in the in the last few days and in the run up to the game last week about the ticket prices for the game last week and whether they were set a little bit high and if 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 the club had maybe not been quite so I guess greedy is probably the word here if they if they'd not set them quite so high that we maybe would have ended up with a full house. Do you think that we might see a change of heart from the club in terms of where they set ticket pricing for the Carabao game? 
I think on Twitter, both Dave Cormack and Rob Wicks have made comment to reviewing not just the ticket prices, but the overall um, operation at Pataudry. So I think the ticket pricing, obviously the club has lost an awful lot of money, so I can understand why they price it so I, I think sometimes when I look at the price of a ticket, it's not always, it's not necessarily the price of the ticket per se, but there's there's certain sort of markers that you just think, well, that's pretty steep. You know, anything £25 plus in my book, I look at it, I think that's, that's really quite expensive for a football ticket. It kind of doesn't really matter what the occasion is. So I, I think sometimes it's just maybe the level it's set at. And, and at the end of the day, it does take up people's time and you're not going to please everyone. And people are obviously entitled to say, they think it's a little bit too steep, but then I kind of the, the flip side is they cut the price, they cut the budget, we get a poorer product on the pitch, uh, and then obviously we're all complaining and not going as often. So it's I think it's quite difficult. I'd like to see them do something in acknowledgement of that for the for the next tie and just basically our, our best chance is to fill up the place and get a really rowdy atmosphere and really get on the back of the opposition and support the team. So I would like them to price it such that. The place fills up. I can understand what the club are trying to do. The club kind of looked at that and went, we're going to get a decent number of people turning up to this game regardless because it's the first time we can have a properly sized crowd in. And you're right, Graham, they've lost out on a lot of cash in the last 18 months. And I can understand them trying to maximise it. I think what probably really stuck in a lot of people's crawl was probably then seeing what other clubs in Scotland were doing last week or what, you know, what they have done, you know. St. Johnston let their supporters in for nothing um, to the match against Galatasaray. Now, I've seen people going on about that's a great gesture, and it is a great gesture, don't get me wrong. At the same time, though, let's not forget that St. Johnston won both domestic cups last season. So their budget, in real terms, will have been looking quite healthy, I imagine, compared to normal times for St. Johnston last season with those two cup wins. They're also guaranteed to get at least one more round of football no matter what happened against Galatasaray they would, they would automatically be dropping in the conference league anyway so it's it's an easier call I think for St Johnson to decide to give away access for free Celtic and Hibs I think priced their their home ties in a, in a much more kind of competitive manner as well and I think that that also didn't paint the club in a particularly good light because it did, it did genuinely just look like we were just trying to grab as much money as we possibly could out of the occasion yeah, there's a slightly conflicting message. And on the one hand, getting bombarded with emails, thanking me for my support, etc. Uh, but it's kind of, you know, thanks for your support, but now give us your cash. It's, I don't know, they don't really line up the message and the pricing. So we'll see what we get next time. And if we're still sitting here talking about this uh, after the next round, then that will be a little bit disappointing. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, I think, fair to say, all things relatively positive after last Thursday night. Everyone bounces out of Pataudry on a high. Aberdeen Twitter is quite a good place to be again, Friday and Saturday. And then it all kind of comes crashing to a halt today. So Starks Park, Wraith Rovers 2, Aberdeen 1 in the second round of the League Cup. An incredibly, incredibly disappointing result for Aberdeen this afternoon. What do we make of it? Uh, so I, I wasn't able to watch the game live. Um, and then I turned my phone on about 2 o'clock and learned what the score was saw the number of changes saw the number of opinions that were flying around twitter regarding that number of changes and the kind of personnel that were starting tonight today's game you see we score an early goal it's a great goal from jet by the way and 
by all accounts, I've since watched the match because I felt an obligation to do so, to uh, to bring the most informed insight into this podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank the good people of the Hop Shop for providing me with the uh, the liquid support. A very comfortable 45 minutes, and you think to yourself that we've got um, enough both on the pitch at that moment and also on the bench to just consolidate and finish the, t- the game off. And I don't know what just happens, but it's a horrendous second half performance. Um, it's summed up by what Jack Gurr does for their winning goal. It really is. Just no urgency in the team. I don't even know how, where to go. I don't even know what to say. Just a hugely disappointing performance, and it feels like we've missed out on a real opportunity here. Yeah, I mean, it's a real... If we take it all the way back to the start, I guess. So, Gav, you're right. A number of changes again to the starting lineup from Thursday night. Eight in total. Um and you're right, again, there's a lot of chat on social media before the game around whether that's the right or the wrong thing to do. Now, personally speaking, for my taste, I've got no real issue around the, the manager rotating his squad in such a way that he thinks is going to get a result. The match against Carabag on Thursday is huge. It's huge for the club on a number of different levels. But at the same time, the the, the cups, the domestic cups, have to be given the respect that they that they deserve as well because realistically they are our best opportunity at getting getting a trophy. That said, if you look at the starting lineup today, and we tweeted out at the time, I still think there's enough in there to get a result at a championship team. And that's with no disrespect to Wraith Rovers, it's not as though we had a team of guys there who were inexperienced players brought up through the youth setup or you know, guys who are making up the numbers, well, potentially with the exception of maybe one or two there. There's enough in that team, in my view, to to win that game. And that kind of gets borne out in the first half to an extent, especially the first 15 or 20 minutes. I thought they're probably the best 15 or 20 minutes, the opening 15, 20 minutes we've seen since Stephen Glass came in as manager. There was some, some great movement, some real good pace and verve about us. We completely dominate the play. Um, Jet was pretty much unplayable for the first 20-25 minutes. Some great touches, some good hold-up play, a couple of nutmegs and a couple of Wraith players, bringing people into play. And then he, he caps it all off with with an absolutely you know stunning finish on the 13th minute. At that point, you think we've got this well under control. I can't see a way that we're going to lose this. And <clears throat> I guess the warning signs were maybe there that as good as an opening spell that that was, didn't really fashion any other main, you know, really clear-cut opportunities. And then it's actually Wraith themselves that have an excellent opportunity with Zanata to level things up not long before the break. And, you know, you go in at halftime 1-0, but I think at that point, everyone must still fancy our chances to get through. Like you say, I've, saw, I've seen some criticism of Jet, um, but I thought he was sensational for the first 25 minutes. Um, just gave Christoph Berra the runaround. It's exactly what you want to see from the guy. I guess the flip side to that is so you want to see more of it and not just 20, 25 minutes of it because, well, I mean, that's where we go into the second half, isn't it? Yeah, second half, it's almost it's almost indescribable for me to, to talk to anyone that hasn't seen the game. So I guess, Graham, you know, you're here. It's almost indescribable to just say the, the, the complete difference between first half and second half. I, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if guys have just gone in there, again, feeling like a bit complacent, feeling this job has been kind of done. I mean, Jack Gurr, right, in fairness to him, I thought he actually had a pretty good first half. He concedes a really soft free kick um, quite early in the second half. And then from the result in set play, he completely loses um, his player in uh, Varian, who then you know pops in the net, levels a tie. 
I felt that our entire team and, and Jack Gurr especially, but I felt that the entire team looked really rattled for the next 10 or 15 minutes, which then forces the manager to have to go to the bench and bring on uh, Ramirez. And then he does a triple sub and brings on Brown, Ferguson and Hedges. And within about 30 seconds of the triple sub, Wraith grab a second. And I guess, first of all, I cannot imagine that Stephen Glass really wants to have those four guys having to have play a minute of football today if he could avoid avoided it. So he must be really disappointed that the guys he put out on the pitch to begin with couldn't, you know, get that job done and not have to rely on these boys come off the bench. But yeah, like I say, within a couple of seconds, it's Wraith who get a goal. Zanata, it's a decent finish from the guy, but question marks for me potentially over Joe Lewis's role in the goal. I, I feel that while he makes the save, he kind of parries it back into the back in the penalty area, but it lands at Jack Gurr's feet. And what on earth he's thinking? I've, I've no idea why he just doesn't swing his left foot at it to get rid of it. I don't know. Tries to play it up on himself and, and kind of take a touch on it. Zanata nips in. Fine finish, 2-1. And I felt there was a lot of huffing and puffing from us for the next 24 minutes, but we never really looked like scoring, I don't think. Now that I, th- I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I can't. There was a couple of good crosses that players didn't attack, but I mean... Was there a chance? Johnny Hayes shot, which was blocked, and that results in his... I think the Wraith guy lands on his foot, and that's what causes the injury. Beyond that, I don't think there was anything. Um, for me, I don't think... I think Lewis can look at his the save, his part in the in the second goal, and say that he's made the save, and he's powered it far enough away from goal towards a red shirt. I think he can be okay with what he's done there. Jack Gurr just stands there and waits for the ball. And it's just, it's unforgivable to do that uh, in the penalty area. Whether he doesn't get a shout from anyone, I don't know. But still, I think you need to have the awareness to know that Wraith were pressing us really hard at that point. There's always a chance someone's going to be there. I don't think it's even an awareness thing. I don't think he should even need a shout there. I think that when you play football, when you're brought up playing football as a defender especially, the first thing you're taught in that type of scenario there is just get your foot through the ball and get clear your lines a little bit and try and get the ball at the park and try and reset for a bit. I, I just don't understand what he's trying to do. Having having seen the chat on Twitter about his performance, I expected him to be far worse um, beyond the two goals. Um, I thought the set, first half, there was a lot of good runs. I think you can see there's a lot of energy from the guy, and that's probably to be expected from someone who's come through the MLS, um, I guess, youth system or the college setup in America. But when, the, when he has the ball at his feet, he just seems very, very uncomfortable. And also... Defensive, defensively seems very, very weak and someone that I think teams will will um, will target if they have the opportunity to do so. I mean, at the end of the day, the stats don't lie. We had one shot on target in 90 minutes, which is the goal we score. That's just not good enough in a in a cup tie, especially a cup tie against lower league opposition. It's not even a story they can blame the pitch or anything. It's not like it's a, a potato field or something. You know, it's a AstroTurf pitch. There's nothing really there that's new for us to have to deal with. Just all around an absolutely terrible afternoon's piece of work. Um, and I think a lot of people haven't really spoken about this very much on social media. Let's not forget, the, the ties at 1-1 when Brown, Ferguson and Hedges come on the pitch, okay, it goes 2-1 a matter of seconds later. But I don't really feel that Brown, Ferguson or Hedges really influenced the game in any sort of way after they came on. Ramirez barely did anything but you can't really get the guy there was no service to him at all um I was maybe expecting a little bit more from the likes of Brown um Ferguson and Hedges to be honest and then to, to cap things off for Stephen Glass he'll have wanted to avoid having to put these guys on the pitch full stop but for us to then leave with a 2-1 defeat and then have two players in Johnny Hayes and and much more importantly Ryan Hedges leave on well Hayes in a cast and 
hedges on crutches puts us potentially in a really difficult spot for for Thursday night. Yeah, I mean the day has gone pretty much as badly as we could have, <laughs> as bad as we could have prayed it would not go. If that makes sense. The only way it would be worse would be if Ramirez had picked up an injury as well. Massively disappointed. There was a lot of chat going on about whether you would take um, losing this game and going out of the League Cup in exchange for getting through to the group stage of the Europa League. Sorry, getting through to the Europa Conference League group stage. And at this moment, I don't feel as though getting through the group stage will make up for the disappointment of missing out on this chance to win this trophy. You know, we, we talk about this all the time at the moment, but you know, what do we think we've actually learned again out of those two those two games in the last week? I think what's probably more pertinent is what Stephen Glass has learned from this last two games. We've talked about it from episode one. The squad feels light. I think there's people in that squad who are not up to what we need them uh, to be capable of. And so I think this will show. There was a lot of chat after the second game with um, Breath of Blake that Glass wants to bring in at least two more attacking players. I still think we're, we need a centre half. I think we need personnel probably possibly all over the pitch. I think the only place we don't need is probably in the centre of the midfield. Well, even then, if we lose Lewis Ferguson, then I think we do. I, th- I think that I think we'll struggle to justify bringing in another centre midfielder if that's the case. I think got, there's enough bodies in there. I think at the moment, for me, again, today has completely proven what we thought after the Livingston game. Jet's not a number nine and, and can't play as a, as a striker up top by himself. Disappointing again from Niall McGinn today, and Graham, you touched on it at the. In, in episode three, I think, you know, I'm, I'm wondering now if this is potentially the end of the road from again in this particular uh, setup. Jenks, I felt, didn't really offer much today. Dylan McGeeach, who I thought did okay actually last Thursday night against Braitha Blake, I thought was a bit too slow, a bit too ponderous on the ball today. <sighs> Question about Ross McCrory again today at the centre defence. Jack Gurr, we've spoken about. It's a, it's a worry because you do look at that. On the face of it, that that team looked like it should have had more about itself to get a victory today and to have come away without really kind of putting up much of a fight is exceptionally disappointing. Yeah, and I guess what I mean is that it feels to me like we're two or three injuries away from being in a really difficult situation. Yeah, I think as well. I think people were talking about it today as well, but would you trade this for that or this or the next thing? I kind of feel in a way that people were maybe looking at the wrong trade. For me, I think today, I would like to have seen the manager decided to put his strongest 11 out to begin with, hopefully try and get one or two goals up, kill the game off, bring off some people, go to Karabag, go to Baku on um, on Thursday night, hopefully get a result out there. And if we do get a result to keep ourselves in the tie, the place to rest players, I felt, would have been at Tynecastle next Sunday. Yeah, it's a balancing act, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's decisions that Stephen Glass has to, uh, has to live and die by. Um, I think someone made the good point as well that with five subs, you have more leeway for resting players. So if we do go ahead with the strongest 11, we can take pretty much half the outfield team off and, as you say, rest players. Um, but yeah, Glass made his decision. He's got to stick by it. He said himself that successful managers at Aberdeen win trophies. That's the first one. You know, that's not going to happen. Got to just make sure we, uh, we recover, we pick ourselves up, and we go on Thursday and get a positive result. Well, it does mean domestically Glass's cup record. And it's it's very early days. It's kind of a bit unfair necessarily to put this out there like this. But we've now seen a, a 2-2 home draw against Livingston, a, a horrendous 3-0 defeat by Dundee United in the Scottish Cup last season. And then that gets tallied up with uh, our first exit to lower league opposition in any of the cups since 2015 when when, when Hibs uh, knocked us out of the League Cup. So it's a, it's a very disappointing day. And I think that, I think I tweeted it earlier on, 
in a in a way, it makes now making the group stages of the Conference League pretty much must do. So looking ahead then, next week in the SPFL Premiership, we visit Tynecastle, our first trip to Gorgie in the league since I think it's around December 2019. Um, because you know, certain teams out there yo-yo between the, the premiership and the championship. Hearts obviously have got off to a, a decent start in the league this season. Uh, two wins out of two. Uh, a, a decent home win for them on the opening day against Celtic. Um, God, I wish in retrospect now maybe we were playing Celtic early doors in the league as opposed to later on in October when we get them. Um, and of course, I think Hearts then followed up with a victory against St. Brennan as well. But obviously today, knocked out of the League Cup by Celtic again, 3-2. What are we kind of expecting, do we think, guys, on our on our first trip to Tynecastle in a wee while? Well, I've consulted with my uh, heart supporting friend. So, Craig, thank you very much for uh, for the insight here. Also, they won the Scottish Championship last year, won it by, I think, a mile. But the fans seem a little bit disgruntled still with the style of football that Robbie Nielsen um, is playing. He's a disciple of Craig Levine. So I think we know, I think we pretty know what we're going to expect. We are going to get a battle. That's what, that's what it is at Tynecastle, isn't it? A disciple of Craig Levine. Bloody hell. Only he does play a striker. Um, <laughs> you know, we've you talked about their record. They won their four group League Cup games against Cali Thistle, Sterling Albion, Cove Rangers, and Peterhead. They lost today, 3-2 to Celtic and League Cup. And I think if you look at the stats for today, it's something like 35 shots on goal for Celtic and like 78% possession or something like that. So you can tell that Nielsen is when up against teams that we perhaps perceives to be stronger than him is going to set up in a very defensive minded shape and just look to hit teams on the break and score from set pieces. I just, yeah, I expect what we always get from Hearts um, only without the satisfaction of beating them because there's no longer Christoph Berra or Stephen Naismith. There's still plenty to dislike about Hearts, so let's not pretend otherwise. Oh yeah, Andy Halliday's there. Ah, oh, fuck him. Yeah. Yeah, in the week where open goal appears to have basically eaten themselves, it would be quite satisfactory to go in um, to get a victory at Tynecastle. But I, I do wonder if we're going to see a number of changes from, from the Aberdeen team. Obviously, we travel to Baku. I think we're traveling out there on Tuesday night um, or Tuesday during the day. It's, 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 a pretty, it's a pretty lengthy trip, having done it myself uh, on a number of occasions in the last few years with my work. Um, it's not a trip coming home as well. It's much fun, generally speaking. I think if your heart's you must be looking at the performance today and really fancying your chances. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, we There's notable players in the Hearts team. There's guys that we are very familiar with. You know, there's Craig Halkett and Liam Boyce, who I think in a parallel universe could easily have been Aberdeen players, but they obviously chose to go to Hearts. Uh, we know how dangerous Gaidon mckay Stephen can be, making a point against us. Um, you know, Craig Gordon's in the sticks. Um, Haring's a good player. John is a good player. Yeah, I'm sure they'll look at us and say that there's a team to be got at and, you know, how we're going to then handle perhaps the physicality that they might bring. Their fans are aspiring for the top six. They'll be looking to make the most of their home fixtures to just, you know, get points on the board and, yeah, earn themselves that top six place. I don't think any game against Hearts is easy, but given everything we've just been through and, you know, discussed the mechanics of getting to and from Azerbaijan and what team you might have available to play um, to play Hearts. It's going to be difficult um, 
we've already discussed, you know, you were asking earlier, Gary, what did we learn from today? And we were probably all of the opinion, we didn't learn anything, it just confirmed that the fringe players currently aren't doing the job. Some or all of them are going to have to feature on Sunday, you would think, which doesn't really bode well. I mean, we got through against Livingston, but, you know, I would say Hearts are a better team than Livingston, so... Um, the, the fringe players are really going to have their work cut out. And I, yeah, absolutely, Hearts are going to look at this. I think, especially, uh, they're, they're unlikely to face our best 11. So I'm sure they will be looking at this as a great opportunity um, to pull ahead of us in, in the league table. So put it this way, I wouldn't have selected Hearts away as the tie uh, after Thursday night. Um, it's what it is. And at some point, uh, these fringe players are going to have to step up. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of running out of time. Transfer window wise, and you know if we did get into the the group stages for Europe, you know there's a whole lot of extra games, so he's going to have to use the squad. Um, so I think some of them are going to have to start taking their opportunity because some of them aren't, you know, they're not there on long deals, so it's not like they can just kick about for another couple of years. Uh, some of these guys is a little bit make or break. You know, Jack, I think Jack Gers only here for a year, not not picking on him, but an example of a guy who doesn't have long left. Ojo can't have long left. Um, on his contract, there must be. I'm trying to think who else is out there. Hedges doesn't have a lot, you know. So there's there's guys out there that um, need to be taking their opportunities. Uh, try to use my crystal ball here. If we win on Thursday and we lose on Sunday, I'll probably take the view that yeah, okay, that's that's all right. We're in good shape for Europe. Obviously, if we lose Thursday and lose Sunday, then it's starting to get a bit frustrating because um, what you're actually going to get the season, you're out of the cup already. You've probably damage your chances of getting into the group stages in Europe and then um, you know, you're know you running out of um, opportunities to actually achieve something. One thing that we haven't spoken about but it, it might be a big factor is it'll be the first match at Tynecastle that they've had since the restrictions in terms of crowd size have been lifted as well so Tynecastle is always quite a, a good atmosphere for an Aberdeen Hearts game um, it can be quite intimidating I would imagine for players who are not used to it you know, you, you know we all know what like it is the, the stands are very tight on top of you we saw the effect of it where in our home game against Breathablick, especially what a difference the support can make. And for some of those fringe players out there and for certain players, it'll be their first experience of playing in that sort of atmosphere. And, you know, they, it's a, it, they, they're going to have to start thinking about being able to step up to that. And that would even go for some of the young lads on our team as well, who I, at the moment, I can't imagine Ramsey McKenzie, for example, starting next Sunday. But it'll be about, even if they do play, it'll be an experience for them. It's not something they've experienced yet. Um, it's going to be a tough match and I spoke about it earlier on I personally speaking when the draw was made I would have sacrificed hearts away next week because I think there's even an opportunity and I, I hate being pessimistic about Aberdeen I think there's a likelihood that even if you put our strongest 11 out there next Sunday after the travelling and everything come up and, and the exertions we'll have on Thursday night there's a chance we get beat anyway so why not try and put more focus on getting a result today against Wraith, getting to the next round of the cup. And if you have to, if you have to sacrifice three points, is that necessarily a bad thing? You can potentially gain them back again towards the back end of the season, but it would have given us a better chance, I think, to to progress in Europe, hopefully, and also to try and keep ourselves in the cup competition. That said, Wraith drew Celtic away when it came out. So, you know, maybe going out hasn't made that big a difference given the way that Celtic are currently playing at the moment. Who knows? It's difficult to tell. Um, obviously, the numbers would have been different and all that kind of good stuff if we'd been in the draw. But I guess time will tell. We'll see what happens on Thursday. We'll see what happens next Sunday. Like you say, I think Hearts just announced they've sold 12,000 season tickets this year. Um, joking aside, we all know what the home sport Tyne Castle is, is like. 
even when they're down on their luck. And it's a great atmosphere. I think, are there away tickets on offer for next week? Yeah, there is, yeah. So those that will be going, I mean, I don't know. Steel, you're the resident away game goer. You heading down? I don't think I am. Um, I'm I'm in negotiations, put it that way. You probably don't have enough loyalty points, mate. You need about like three and a half thousand or something to get it, don't you? <laughs> There's one man who'll have that number of points. It'll be Graham Steele. Don't worry about that. Um, so yeah, the people that get to go will get to enjoy just a great atmosphere. And uh, and hopefully we can just we can pull something out of the bag because yeah, it does sound like we're up against it right now. So that's obviously taking care of a preview of the domestic scene. Looking ahead to Thursday night, we're going to face a zero opposition for the very first time in Europe in our history when we travel to Baku to face Karabag. Uh, Karabag obviously overcoming AEL Limassol 2-1 on aggregate in the last round. And to get the lowdown on Karabag, we spoke with Fuad Alkbarov, and this is what he had to say. Fuad, welcome along to the ABZ Football Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much. All good. All good from Glasgow. Listen, let's just get straight down to things. Um, Karabag, seven titles in a row, um, lost out to Nefci on the last day of the season, the last couple of minutes, I think, actually, of the of the 2021 season. And as a result of that, they've entered qualifying round two of the Europa Conference League. They saw off Ashdod of Israel, uh, 1-0 in aggregate after a, a win in Israel and then followed that up with a 2-1 victory over uh, AL Limassol in the last round to set up this tie. So... It's, it's pretty well known. Karabag have got a load of recent experience in Europe. You know, they've been involved in the group stages of either the, the Champions League or the Europa League for each of the last seven seasons. Will they be viewing the Conference League as being a little bit of a step down for them, do you think? Um, I think um, Karabag still try to become more ambitious club. Yes, in last few seasons, the club become much more weaker. And that is related to a lot of factors one including the Karabakh war in Azerbaijan and, and Armenia that impacted quite a lot of stuff in the country. Uh, Azerbaijani Premier League is getting weaker. The reason for that, the oil prices going down and Azerbaijan is a country that is very tied to the oil prices. And the third thing is um, league actually become like much more, less competitive. And that is due to Again, local federation is not being, um, I mean, same issues in Scotland. Um, there is, needs to be more kind of competition to the league. League become a bit monotonous, and I think nobody is benefiting from that. But I still think they will uh, try to make to the Cups because um, the Karabakh coach, Gurban Gurbanov, he have this uh, like champions mentality about him. You know, he I saw him as a player when I was a child. I've met him as a person when I was much uh, older as a translator but I always liked his um, moving forward type of attitude that we have to go doesn't matter which cup is it we have to give all the best and I think that makes uh, Karabakh very strong yeah so obviously Fuad you touched on a little bit there obviously Azerbaijan a country which is well renowned for its oil and gas uh, resources there's a, a an instant parallel there between uh, Aberdeen I guess and, and Karabakh so would it be fair to to class this as being the oil derby do you think uh, although Karabakh doesn't come from Baku, which is actually well known for oil, the capital of Azerbaijan, you could say Azerbaijan and Aberdeen have a lot of um, good relations. Actually, there is a small Scottish diaspora of oil workers and mainly coming from Aberdeen and Baku. And same thing can be said about Azerbaijani diaspora in Scotland, which is like 300 people, but most of them based in Aberdeen. And this is like is I would say, despite the game going to be very tense, it'll be lots of friendly atmosphere. I do have a lot of 
friends from Aberdeen and Baku, which are like kind of hoping to <laughs> both clubs doesn't meet each other. But uh, some of actually one of the fans wrote to me, they will be she's she'll be wearing Karabakh shirt with Aberdeen shorts. So I love that. <laughs> Oof, I, I don't know about that. I think that's a bit that's a bit too like English football tourism for for my liking. Um, yeah, I mean, like, what what next? A half and half scarf? I mean, like, what? I know we're not having that. It's it's a shame again though, because I mean, we touched on it through when we were talking before, um, before you agreed. Come on, obviously, with my work previously, I, I used to have to travel to Baku fairly fairly frequently, and it's, it's a cracking city to visit. And it's a shame again that for the Aberdeen support again that it's it's another with with the COVID restrictions and everything, it's another great. European trip that we were having to miss out on because it would have been a fantastic opportunity for a lot of people from uh, from this neck of the woods to travel to Azerbaijan and experience it. I agree. I've been to both in Aberdeen and born in Baku. Um, both have its own pros and cons. And don't get me wrong, I had always fantastic time in Aberdeen and I do have a soft spot for Aberdeen. Um, but um, I think uh, when it comes to the game, both clubs want to be in this cup. They came so much. And from strength and weaknesses point, I mean, Karabakh is very solid defensively. Uh, they are very good when it comes to away games and can cope well against any kind of psychological pressure. And this is like relating to um, that, again, as I previously mentioned to the coach, is very like strong when it comes to psychology. Karabakh got very experienced players, a lot of Azerbaijani national team players. Um, they also signed a player from Montenegro, so another national team player. And this is a very experienced side. It's been playing regularly now in Europa League, uh, played in Champions League against teams like Roma, Chelsea, and drew with Atletico Madrid. So it's, it's not going to be easy for Aberdeen. But having said that, that doesn't mean Karabakh cannot, be, like, Aberdeen cannot overcome Karabakh. I mean, a low conversa- uh, conversion rate is the most significant weakness for Karabakh. They sometimes struggle with like firepower, so they need um, a lot of strikers. And the manager been saying that they're keen to sign striker. Whether it's gonna come up during the game, I don't know. But I have seen Aberdeen's games in Europe uh, in the Conference League qualifiers. I think team down well when it comes to the offense. Uh, another problematic aspect of Karabakh's game is a lack of speed when it comes to central midfield. And Aberdeen needs to use its set pieces, which can be a problem for Karabakh, which often struggle when it comes to standard situations. So having, um, you know, you've given us a brief overview of the manager's winning mentality and touched on the fact that you've regularly uh, competed in Europe. So when it comes to the, the Conference League this season, does that mean that the aspirations for Karabakh are to actually progress past the group stages or will they just be happy to qualify? I think they want to go further as they can. In previous ga- in previous um, games, like against Inter Milan, I remember, they've been blatantly been victim of the poor decision by the referee and they should have qualified to Europa League. And so I think they are looking to progress more. But for them, it's quite important um, to reach this cup because Karabakh will probably going to receive a lot of money from the sponsor. So it's not only, again, the... Uh, the cup glory so they'll be receiving financial boosts so they can sign and uh, get new players and the coach recently said to the Azerbaijani media is keen to build another talented squad from the scratch so it's more than a game it's also about financial stability for the club sounds like that's something that uh, again both the clubs share I think the Aberdeen board and manager I'm sure are looking at this as a, a chance to 
make some uh, substantial money and uh, reinvest that and also recoup some losses that maybe been made through COVID. For Carabag, you know, we talked about this before, uh, before we started recording. You know, they've got experience of playing Celtic in European competition. How will Carabag view Aberdeen as an opponent and what will they be expecting? Um, Carabag coach said uh, Aberdeen, the game is Aberdeen going to be tense. It's going to be very close and he doesn't expect easy game. This year, Karabakh um, not struggled, but it wasn't easy for Karabakh against the Cypriot team, the AL Limassol, and against also Ashdod of Israel. So usually, I mean, previous Karabakh from three years ago would have beaten these teams with much more ease. But one thing I noticed, especially against the last game against uh, Limassol, Karabakh had only one decent chance and managed to use that because um, the Cypriot team was playing very strong from defensive uh, from defensive perspective. So Aberdeen needs to be very careful. This is a side that likes to dominate the game, likes to play um, kind of attacking game and any uh, big mistakes when it comes to defense, which Aberdeen, in my perspective, doing quite a lot. It could cost quite a lot uh, to the Aberdeen. So defenders need to be especially very and I think both teams have one advantage that a lot of players in Aberdeen and same with Karabakh can score anytime a goal. They can be very uh, good like in terms of game-changing abilities. So it's going to be a very interesting tie. And I would say even though Karabakh is favourites on the paper, Aberdeen have every chance to stop Karabakh. That's a really interesting insight straight away if you add into potentially kind of strengths and weaknesses of the current Karabakh squad. Uh, who would be the kind of key men that Aberdeen and Aberdeen fans should be watching out for and I guess be be wary of? Ramil Shaydaev used to be so good for uh, Russian under-17s and under-19s. They nicknamed her, him as a devil because of his surname, which actually rhymes with devil. Uh, he's able to play on the wing and as a centre-forward and he's definitely one of the most naturally gifted players in Azerbaijan. But he do have like uh, issues when it comes to finishing. Uh, he previously wasted quite a lot of good opportunities, and he's not in his peak form yet. But on his day, he's quite a dangerous player. And during Karabakh's Conference League um, campaign, he was very helpful. When not uh, becoming, he didn't score a goals, but he created a lot of goal opportunities. So Aberdeen needs to be very careful of him. And another player I want to see, uh, probably I would say, the Brazilian midfielder Caddy. He scored on his debut against Cypriots, so it'll be interesting to see his game. So just looking back at the, the last couple of games that Karabag played in Europe in order to get to this stage uh, with a tie with Aberdeen, the, the scoreline was really quite low and you touched on um, a low conversion. Is that a sign that of sort of what we can expect um, with the Aberdeen game and, and, and the low scoring is that a lack of quality or is that maybe just a, a defensive setup from the manager? It really de uh, depends on the way Aberdeen going to use strategy. If they are going to play like the Cypriot teams against Karabakh, I think uh, it will backfire on Aberdeen because the Cypriot team in both legs didn't create much chance and only one time they made a mistake. Cost them uh, quite a lot of, um, you know, they lost the, uh, their qualifier. So I think Karabakh prefers to play attacking game, although, yes, Aberdeen can be very good on offense. 
Uh, I think both teams will go like um, they will try to maximum score a few goals. However, the one thing I am concerned about uh, is that Aberdeen can can Aberdeen cope with Baku's heat. Baku can be very hot. It could be 35 Celsius, and that's another issue is a pitch which actually problematic for both clubs. So I wouldn't say Aberdeen will be affected. Uh, the Karabakh manager been complaining about the pitch for a while. So it caused a lot of issues in the last um, um, game against this, uh, Limassol. Um, but it will be interesting because Karabakh's style is based on Pep Guardiola. And this is one of the issues. Uh, this is one of the reasons Karabakh loves to play patient, short passing game, the smart movement of the ball. And when speed is needed, it's provided by the wingers. So yeah, you just touched on it there, Fuad. Obviously, usually Karabag will play their European ties at the Tofik Baramov Stadium. Um, but there's there's a lot of talk at the moment now about the potential for that for the tie next week to be moved to Karabag's actual home ground, the Azerzun Arena. I mean, that shouldn't really provide Karabag with, with too many problems, obviously, because it's, it's getting moved to their own stadium. But I, I'm presuming that the pitch at the uh, Azerzun Arena is is in a better condition than the one at the Tofik Baramov. Yeah, um, Tofik Baramov is a much bigger stadium, and I think Karabakh chose it because of the parking, uh, uh, for the parking reasons, because a lot of fans want to attend the game, especially after lockdown. But Azersun Arena, when it comes to pitch, it's like triple times better than uh, Tofik Baramov uh, Stadium. But I think the uh, club is trying to improve uh, its pitch, especially when they're going to play in uh cup you need to improve your uh, pitch which has been in appalling state sadly uh having said that um i think it doesn't matter where karabakh plays in azerbaijan in azerstun or in in tofik Bahramov, it's still gonna have a lot of support and i don't know when it comes to Aberdeen how much they can cope with um like a pressure from azerbaijani fans uh, has there been much word just now about whether or not that the, the move of the game is actually going to take place. I know it was talked about a couple of days ago, but it seems to have gone quiet since. As far as I know, it will be played at Tofik Bahramov Stadium. Um, but um, it could be, it depends on the UEFA, I think. If they doesn't allow it, the game will be moved to other soon. But I, of, of course, want to see the game to be played on the normal pitch. So Tofik Bahramov Stadium's pitch is terrible. If they couldn't move it to Azazun, I think I read that they might not get permission from UEFA to do that at such short notice. Would there be an option they would move it to the um, to the Olympic Stadium? I don't know, but uh, Olympic Stadium's pitch is quite good, and I think Azazun should not have any issues. The only issue, again, is when it comes to parking. But I haven't said that. Unfortunately, I think the game will be held at the Tofik Bahramov Stadium. You said there's a difference in the size of the stadium. That's why they play at the Tofik Baramov. Um, what's the difference in terms of capacity between both stadiums? Uh, Azersun Arena, as far as I remember, is much smaller. I think it's like 12,000 fans. And Tofik Baramov is 30,000 compared to Olympic Stadium, which is 70,000. So we are going double, double, double. And But of course, Karabakh wants to have as much as possible fans. You know, just like uh, So first of all, to boost the home side, Second of all, to put pressure on Aberdeen. The game in Azerbaijan will be kicking off at five o'clock local time, and it's going to be pretty hot, as you say. Um, a lot of talk of the travel for Aberdeen, you know, where we've played today, and then we'll travel out to Azerbaijan for the game on Thursday. Of course, it works both ways. I believe Karabag are scheduled to play next Sunday in the league at home, and then obviously travel to Aberdeen. 
how do you think they will approach uh, making the making the journey to Scotland? I think they will travel via Baku, London, London, Aberdeen uh, route because it's easier and they don't want to stop in so many places, especially during the COVID uh, restriction era. And having said that, of course, um, Karabakh also faces a long trip to Aberdeen. Um, but um, I am more concerned about the heat in Baku because sometimes game can be so hot. I think for both players, you have to feel the heat because 35, 37, and sometimes it can actually reach 42 degrees. And this is one of the issues about the climate change as well. Uh, we should take it seriously. Um, but I think both teams are going to have uh, water breaks. However, Aberdeen needs to be careful of the heat because it affected a lot of um, English sites which travel to the Baku uh, when it comes to Europa League or the Champions League. Certainly. So you think probably best to be more conservative in their energy, shall we say, when they're playing? Definitely. They should use their chances and they shouldn't um, do unnecessary actions because um, the, if they play defensively, I think Aberdeen could struggle. But of course, we will find out in during the game. But uh, Aberdeen needs to have a clear agenda when it comes to playing Calabac. Um, given too much possession, it will cost a club quite a lot as well as unnecessarily like a run-in or um, not being efficient enough, it's full backfire on the club. So just um, kind of looking ahead um, a little bit to see that uh, Karabakh kicked off their league campaign today um, with a one-all draw against Zira um, away from home. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that or if that, um, you know, if they rested a lot of players, how you felt they played. I have looked at the game. Uh, I think Karabakh rested some of their players and the manager also rested key defender Maxim Medvedev, which is one of the most capped Azerbaijani national team players, as well as Karabakh's captain. Having said that, he said he was watching closely Aberdeen game uh, against Rafe Rovers. So I think both teams kind of um, will not going to risk a lot when it comes to gaming Baku. Um, but um, Karabakh will try to use its advantage when, to score more goals against Aberdeen. And Aberdeen defensive needs to be very, very of Karabakh's midfield, which is full of talent. And uh, so they need to use their chances as well. So I guess, Fuad, the, the million-dollar question, who do you make out to be the favourites for the tie overall? And would you care to venture a, a prediction for us? I usually don't like to give predictions, especially <laughs> when it comes to close games. I, I, I would say chances are 60% uh, in favour of Karabakh, 40% against Aberdeen. Um, it's not going to be easy ride for the both clubs. However, if Aberdeen can get a good result in Baku, um, they will definitely will be favourites for me. So it all depends. And by favourite result, I mean a win against Karabakh. Because um, draw might be not good, especially after new rules change. And Karabakh plays very well away. Uh, actually, we often joke in Azerbaijan, Karabakh is more away club. So they tend to score quite a lot of goals in a way than compared to Baku. And I don't know what is that is related to. Maybe there are less pressure in, in Baku on Karabakh. Um, but I would say Karabakh's are favourites, but it's difficult to say which way this tie will go because both clubs will be going at it at maximum. Good stuff. Fuad, I think that's that's excellent. You've given us a really good oversight there, I think, of, uh, of Karabakh. So we'd uh, just like to thank you again for, for taking the time to speak this year on the ABZ Football Podcast. And um, we'll see where we are in, in two weeks' time. We'll see if your prediction has panned out. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So just to wrap things off on... 
this half of the ABZ Football Podcast this week. Looking obviously at the, the, the women's team recording a, another fine 4-0 victory today in, in Group A of the SWPL Cup. That maintains a 100% record for the, for, the, for the ladies in that competition. Uh, a brace apiece for Ava Thompson and for Bailey Hutchison sealing that win. And they go on to face Motherwell next week. And I think what will be a crucial fixture to determine qualification into the next round. And I guess the other significant piece of news that came out from the club during the course of the week is that they uh, announced that they've got about 8,600 season tickets being sold for the season. Big hard sell on now from the club to try and get that up to the 9,000 mark. I think it's a bit of a funny one. I think that that is relatively in line with what the last couple of, a couple of years have been for the club. Are you kind of surprised it's still sitting around that level? Were you expect a bit better this, this season? There's a lot of stuff happened over the last 15 months or so. People's situations may or may not be the same or obviously people are now getting their time back and family maybe takes over and stuff like that so it would have been nice to get more but then having said that new manager etc maybe people want to buy their time and see what they get first which is absolutely fair enough so it would have been nice to get more but I'd probably take the positive which is that we've not we've not lost out um, it'd be good to be further forward but at least we've not regressed and lost a few thousand uh, season take holders for example. Yeah, there's a variety of factors at play here, you know, and people perhaps not quite having the disposable income to spend money on an entire season ticket. But I think also as well, we've got to, um, to reflect on, I mean, Gary, you mentioned this in maybe the first or second episode, you know, it's a sport that was disillusioned with its club um, for so many years and the club have got to win that back now. Um, it started off pretty well, if you pretend that today at Kirkcaldy didn't happen. Yeah, that just has to get built on and you know, it's uh, it's the old saying, you build it, they will come. And on that, on, on the build it and they will come, you know, the whole uh, field of dreams idea. I think I would speak on behalf of the three of us. If you're out there and you're swaying about getting a season ticket this season, if you're going to get one, get yourself in the red shed. I think there's like 300 tickets left, I think they said, for the rest of the season. Thursday night was fantastic in there. Hopefully, fingers crossed, that can continue for the rest of the season. It's what the ground has been crying out for for as long as I've been going at Pataudry. Fair dues to the club for making it happen. Uh, fair dues to everybody who actually attended on Thursday and made that atmosphere. And let's hope we can continue that for the rest of the season as well. The proof will be in the pudding, I guess, when, you know, St. Johnston come up here and stifle for a nil-nil draw and um, whether that atmosphere can continue to go. But hopefully it can. And um, like I said, I'd encourage anyone who's, who's thinking about it that that's a good place to be. So we're going to take a short break. Join us afterwards for our exclusive interview with Big Duncan Shearer. And to play us out for the first half, here's The Little Kicks with their track, You and Someone Like Me. Check out The Little Kicks at thelittlekicks.com or follow them on Twitter at The Little Kicks.
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Hop Shop Aberdeen. As passionate supporters of the Mighty Dandies, the guys at Hop Shop Aberdeen are offering listeners a 10% discount on any online order on an unlimited basis for the remainder of the 21-22 season. Simply use the code ABZ Podcast when checking out to receive your discount. So visit hopshopaberdeen.com and get selecting from their extensive selection of over 500 craft beers from the northeast of Scotland and further afield for the week ahead. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. So joining us this week is a man who joined Aberdeen from Blackburn Rovers in the summer of 1992, scoring 79 goals for the Dons across 194 appearances. It is the one and the only Duncan Shearer. Hello and good evening to Duncan Shearer. Welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, brilliant. Duncan, we're delighted to have you on. Um as we were chatting before, um, when you agreed to come on the show, um, you were my favourite player back in 1992. And there's a, a classic photograph of yourself and myself on the, on the pitch before we uh, played Motherwell back in the, on my birthday, I think. Probably won't remember it, I doubt. But you were on the score sheet along with Brian Grant, a 2-0 victory. That wasn't the game where they opened the... Was the Richard Dolan stand open for the first time that year? It was, it was still being built. Um, it opened up, I think, properly the season after. Um, so it was a bit of an odd atmosphere because there was also nothing at that beach end, just that weird tarpon and everything. But yeah. Okay, so no, thank you again for joining us, Duncan. We, re- we really appreciate it. So we'll just cut straight to the chase. Obviously, you were you were born in Fort William uh, in, in August of 1962 and it was shinty, not not football, that was your first sporting love. Yeah, yeah, I love playing shinty. My dad played shinty uh, for Kamali uh, years, years ago. Um, and so I was brought up playing that along with football. Um, when kids played all the sports outside, you know, we played most things. Um, but uh, played a lot of shinty and for a uh, cool primary school. And we were quite successful. They hadn't been very successful in terms of the shinty uh, world. It was always Oban Rockfield and, and Sky and that. They would take all the trophies and that. But we had a really good team and we won our league and we got to the Mackay Cup final, we called it. It was the equivalent of the Scottish Cup for kids, you know, um, we, we got, uh, we got our arses felt out in <laughs> <laughs> by Sky, we got beat 7-1, but uh, it was an achievement getting there. So yeah, Shinty was the, Shinty was the start of it for me, yeah. So then after obviously turning your attention to, to football and after only having really played at kind of local welfare level at the time, you ended up on a trial at Park Thistle um, in 1979, which perhaps didn't turn out to be successful, but was it kind of at that point, you know, that experience about getting a trial at, at Thistle, who were a Premier League team at that point? Did that give you some real encouragement and kind of impetus that perhaps you could make a, a career out of football? I think a lot of that had to do with um, uh, Donald Park, played for Patrick Thistle at the time. Um, and Donald's actually my second cousin. So I think he had something to do with sending myself and, and uh, one of my friends, Alan McKinnon, down to Patrick Thistle just before pre-season. Patrick were actually the first team in Canada at the time, and you know the manager was Bertie Olds. But the boy that looked after us is the 
the late Davy Proven. Um, really nice man. And we went down there for a week and then we actually came back up to Proloyan with the team and we played two games. We played on, uh, I think it was a Friday evening and on the Saturday. Um, so, you know, we got some game time there and then then at the end of it, uh, you know, David took us to the side and, you know, just said, as a lot of kids get, you know, you know, you're not quite ready for this level and that, but keep sticking away and that, you know. Uh, so the funny story with that for me was that um, the next time I seen David, I was, I was in the Aberdeen team and I got picked for the national team, um, the first time in the squad, and we trained at Capolo. And the person I seen there was Davy Proven, just putting some bags of balls in his in the boot of his car, and he just looked up at me and gave me a wee wink and that, you know. So it's one of these ones where you say, "Well, he said I wasn't good enough, but here I am," you know. Um, but nothing, there's nothing to do. That. He was probably right at the time. I was very raw in terms of football. Although we had a lot of uh, coaches in football, there was I never really got coached, to be honest with you, until I until I went down to Chelsea and. Uh, in the early 80s. Uh, following on from your, your experience with Partick Thistle, um, you started out your career properly with Clacknacudden, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing sensibly, uh, in the Highland League, where you played for four seasons between 1979 and 1983, even spending much of the 81-82 season uh, uh, playing as a centre-half. Do you think that your, your spell in the Highland League set you up for your professional career in terms of it's a it's a physical game and obviously the professional game is a physical game. Does that give you a good standing when you did start to progress? I think it did, Graham. You know, um, I got taken up there by a lad called John Dennison. Um, he, now, he still lives in Fort William. He played left back for Clark at the time and he played alongside my brother David a couple of years earlier at Clark where David went on to sign for Middlesbrough. So I went up there, firstly, as a striker, of course, yeah. Um, played a season as striker and, and, and then went back the way to play about a year at centre-half and then pushed back into striker again. So I was a bit, you know, trying to find my feet that what I was good at. Um, but, um, and incidentally, have you any idea what Clashnagurden means? I am going to be honest. No, I don't. <laughs> it's, I, I believe it's Stone of the Tubs. It's where the, the, the old women down in the Merkinch area and then my best used to go down to the river and whack their clothes against the stones to, to, to wash their clothes. So every day is the school day. Yeah, that, that's absolutely fair enough. Role reversals uh, asking me a question. So uh, <laughs> that, that's that's fair enough. Duncan, so it was at that spell at um, Clackmacudden that you first attracted the attention of Aberdeen. I think some people might not be aware of this, but you were actually invited for a trial in 1981. Yeah, so that was with uh, Sir Alex Bergson and Archie Knox uh, in charge. And fair to say at that point, they'd put some of the pieces in place that would ultimately create the greatest uh, team that's ever been in, uh, in Aberdeen's history. What was it like going on trial um, at that point and how much exposure to the first team of Aberdeen did you get at the time? Oh, well, I was, I, I was training with them on the Friday uh, and, and, and most of the time as well because Alec uh, was there for a week. Alec liked the young boys to get involved because um, I was I was probably just a year older than Eric and Neil and all them, Eric Black and Neil Cooper and all them, you know. Uh, what was I? I would have been 18, was I? Yeah, I think 18 when I went to Aberdeen. Uh, enjoyed a really good week. Um, and the last game, the Friday, we trained at Seton Park and I remember uh, getting a lot of good advice from John McMaster 
you know, he would come up and have a wee chat with you and, and Alec and all the boys were, were really fantastic. So I had, had a really good time there and uh, enjoyed it. And Alec came up, uh, Ferguson came up and had a few words as well. And Drew Jarvie was there as well. So it was, uh, it was, um, it was educational, that's for sure. But it was a bit, it was really quick for me, you know. You know, you go from Highland League, as I mentioned, it didn't really get any much coaching. So, you know, the five-a-sides, even when we played five-a-sides at Seaton Park, the, the speed that the boys were moving the ball was way above anything that I'd ever encountered. But I still enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was good. Thing. Some of the younger listeners here will be slightly perplexed by what you're saying there. But yes, we did used to train at Seaton Park. Um, after, so, yeah, you mentioned that you had a good time and you impressed during the first week, but maybe the second week didn't go quite according to plan. Was that fair to say? I don't know. I'm, I'm still, to this day, I'm still a wee bit confused what actually happened. I went back on this Saturday, uh, it was no Friday evening, and I played for Clark on the Saturday, but I had to stay over again. I think we had a game. The north of Scotland used to play the east. You know, the teams from Keith and all that would pick a team, and it was Bobby Wilson that was uh, taking the north team. So we played on the Sunday, and then I, saw, I got a phone call saying, you need to come back on the Monday. There's a game on Tuesday. And then I got another phone call saying the game's called off. You know, we're going to play a, a friendly against a broth or for one of the Angus teams. And I said, okay, well, I need to go back to Fulham. So we'd rather you just come through now for another week. And I said, no, I need to go back to Fulham. And that was it. I went back to Fulham and it was misconstrued somewhere between the staff at Clark, uh, whoever was dealing with it, and, and at Aberdeen, you know. So. And I never heard anything after that. So I just... Just let it go, you know. I mean, in in retrospect, was it maybe not a bad thing that that miscommunication happened? No, no, I think it was a bad. I think it was a bad thing. I would love to have been involved because, as mentioned earlier on, I was the same age as Neil and uh, Eric Black and all that. And uh, had I got there, you know, I'm thinking in my back of my head now, you know, I could have been involved in that day in in Gothenburg, you know. Uh, you could you could have been John Hewitt. Ah, I maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, and, uh, but no, it's just, yeah, you got on with it. It turned out all right in the end. Aye. I mean, Scotland's not a big place, um, you know, in reality. And with Aberdeen interest at the time, did you have much interest from in any other clubs in Scotland or even, I guess, down south? No, there was a man uh, called uh, Jock Shields. He was a Celtic scout in Florida. Well, whether he was a scout or not, I'm not sure to this day. But he had connections at Celtic and he was... He was at my family door, my mum and dad's door, um, wanting to see me. I was out at the time and all they said was, there's a man left a number here, you know, can you give him a call? Um, I never did. Good man, good man you didn't. Obviously, February of 83, um, you'd been with Clack for four seasons, but it was Chelsea, of all of all teams, who came calling and took you to London. That must have been a hell of a culture shock to go from Clack, Fort William, and the Highland League down to London, Chelsea... The, the Premier Division, or the First Division, I guess, as it was back in the day? Well, bearing in mind, you know, I was a 16-year-old when I first went to Clark, and that was the first time I'd seen a double-dare bus. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we've got this railway bridge down in Fulham, um, where uh, just past the Milton Hotel, the Hilton Hotel, it was called at the time, um, double-dare buses couldn't get underneath it. So they're all single-decker buses, and it wasn't until I played a game up in the Maness I've seen this other bus on top of one bus on top of another. But yeah, no, that's um it was that was it was it was a strange one 
for me at the time, you know, and um, it's just wondering because I was doing jobs here and there, down there, and I didn't have anything solid in terms of a job. I was in the British Aluminium, I was in, I was in the sawmill, and uh, I was in the forestry and just picking up things. So I didn't really know what direction I was going. And then I played a game uh, up at Dingwall for Clark, a midweek game, I remember it um, just like it was yesterday. And we won 4-2 and I managed to score two goals. And I was coming up and it wasn't any of the Clark staff. This man approached me in, in, the, in the tunnel and it was uh, the, uh, the late Rod Klein. Um, I think he'd done some general work in that. And he was very friendly with uh, Ian McNeil, who used to be a Ross County manager. He was now the assistant manager at Chelsea. And he was behind uh, signing a lot of young Scottish players. Plus, the manager was John Neal, who was manager of Middlesbrough, who signed my brother, my older brother, David, a couple of years before me in the early 80s, around about 80, I think it was. So there was that connection there. And he'd, he'd said to me, I was 21 then, uh, uh, managed to get a couple of good goals that night. And he asked me if I wanted to go down. And I said to him, I says, you do realise I'm 21, don't you? He says, yeah, yeah I know your age, he says. But, I would like you to go down and see, do you want? I said, yeah, of course I will. So I went down, I met Ian McNeil and uh, I trained with their youth team when I went down, down at Chelsea. And, and yeah, it was, it was a massive cultural shock for me <laughs> going from Fort William to London, you know. And it, incidentally, it was the first time I was on a plane as well. I was 21. So went down there and after a week's trial, I got, um, I played a, as a trialist, and it was a combination league they called it at the time, played against Bristol Rovers. And I remember the Chelsea players saying after an hour, shouting over to Ian, you know, you need to get him off. He's knackered. He's just, his legs have gone. You know, and the game was so fast, you know. He took me off and that, and he drove me back to the digs, and halfway back to my digs, uh, he just said to me, he says, how much do you think um, Clark would want for you? I says, ah, no idea. He says, okay, we're going to put a wee bed in and we'll get you down here and get you started, you know. So I was, I was delighted. Yeah, that does sound like quite a change um, and a number of firsts as well um, at a relatively young age, which is quite good. So when, um, obviously, when you joined Chelsea, they were beginning to hit a bit of an upswing in form when you arrived. Um, they'd won the old second division in your first, first full season. Uh, and then the top six the following year, um, which as a result kind of meant that maybe first team opportunities were hard to come by. Uh, having said that, you made your first team debut for Chelsea against Leicester City in February 86. And as I'm sure you were delighted to do, scored in your debut um, in a two-all draw with a, a Chelsea side featuring um, Doug Rugby as well. You then retained your place the following week, um, albeit a 4-1 home, home defeat to Oxford United before uh, sort of, you know, we pushed back into the reserves as a couple of players came back from injury. What was your initial reaction to uh, going back then to the, reser the reserves, having got into the side and actually scored in your debut? Oh, no problem at all. Absolutely no problem at all. Because at the time, the, the best strike force in England at the time was Kerry Dixon, David Speedy. And Kerry had picked up a, uh, an injury that kept him out for a couple of weeks. So I've still, even if I scored a couple more, I still think I would have been put back down, maybe possibly onto the bench for the next game, you know. So I didn't have a problem, but my mindset there was always, because I mean, after the first two or three months I joined Chelsea, 
um, John Hollands um, was the coach at the time, and John had come to me. So listen, there's a couple of clubs seen you playing in the combination league. Duncan Redden was one of them, and I can't remember the other one. I was wondering if you want to go out on loan, you know. And I asked him, what, you know, what, what do you think? He says, I think you should just sit here for just a wee bit and just learn a bit. So that's what I did. Uh, I used it as a like a late apprenticeship for me, you know, because um, I never got that chance to to have that between 16 and 19 or 16 and 20 that a lot of young apprentices get where you're learning all these things. And as I said, I didn't start getting coached until uh, the youth coach at Chelsea, who's the team, uh, Gwyn Williams, he was the one that started learning me, teaching me how to use my body and how important the first touch was and that. And that's when I, I started flicking into how, you know, how the game actually works. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'd no problem being left out again, that's for sure. Good. And it sounds like you made the most of that time at Chelsea. And like you say, it's difficult if you're a striker and you're behind two guys um, like Speedy and Kerry Dixon. So a month later after your debut, you ended up making a move to Huddersfield. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Joey Jones um, was at Chelsea at the time and Joey got released. And he went to Huddersfield and he had put a word in with the manager at Huddersfield, Mick Buxton, saying there's a young Chelsea striker. He scored 27 goals in the Combination League. He's made a couple of first-team appearances. I just think he needs a break, you know. And so Mick Buxton was on the phone, and uh, and that was me. I was on my way down to to Huddersfield. And then you quickly settled into life in Yorkshire. Uh, you scored a hat trick on your full debut in a derby against Barnsley. Um, we can we've spoken to Arl Stavum about this, and we've seen it with Christian Ramirez at Aberdeen. How important it's for strikers when they come into a new club just get a couple of goals under their belt. And, you know, a hat-trick in your debut, that's going to make you a fan favourite instantly. Um, how helpful were those goals just for you settling into, uh, into life at Huddersfield? I keep saying this to strikers nowadays. I still do my column in the, in the P&J and I've touched on it a few times. When, like, Ramirez came to Aberdeen and I touched on it. I says, you're trying to... You can score goals uh, in one team, a lot of goals, and then get transferred to another team. You've now got to convince a whole new set of fans because the Aberdeen fans quickly took to me because I got early goals. And it gives you leeway when you're not scoring goals. It gives you that wee bit of leeway. But I think it's important. And I was pleased to see Ramirez score in his debut as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I got three against Barnsley. And then we played Stoke the next week and I got another two. So I got five in two games. So I was well on my way to give myself some breathing space for, with the Huddersfield fans. And of course, they took to me straight away, which was, which was fantastic, you know. Yeah, because I mean, <clears throat> you obviously end both your first full seasons at, um, at Huddersfield as top scorer in each campaign for them, um, named as their player of the year in, in 1987. And it was during that spell that Leeds, Leeds United attempted to sign you for uh, for about 300 grand, but Huddersfield refused to sell to a local rival, I think it was at the time. And unfortunately, your goals weren't enough to keep Huddersfield safe from, from relegation to the third division at the end of the 87-88 uh, campaign. And I think it's fair to say that your relationship with the manager, Malcolm McDonald, wasn't wasn't the best. No, no, disappointing that one was. Um, I got really excited when he came in too because I know how good a player he was. And I thought, you know, you can I can pick up a lot of things from him. But we just just didn't see eye to eye, you know. He didn't like, I don't know, he didn't, just didn't like the, my style of play. We played Man City one week at, at Main Road, it was at the time, and we got beat 
on the Monday we went back for training. We went training that day. He wanted to see us in the meeting room, so we all went into the meeting room. And you had a videotape of the game and that. And the first thing he did, he played the game, and the ball played up to me within the first thirty seconds, and I lost possession. Um, so he stopped it, rewound it, played it, and he done it about four times. Kept rewinding me playing. He says, "This is where this defeat started, you know. Um, that's just not acceptable." Then he showed a couple of goals after that. He says, "Right." Let's go training. I says, we've just conceded 10 goals. The goalkeeper's throwing them in for fun. The defence are all over the shop. The midfield are not playing well. I'm not playing well. And I just thought then, you know, I thought, nah, nah, nah. So I went in to see him, had it out with him, and he just, he just, he is what he is, Malcolm, you know. And he didn't last long in the job anyway. And yeah, obviously at the end of that campaign, you ended up being subject to a bit of a, a bidding war, so to speak, between the... Uh, West Brom, who had a certain Ron Atkinson in charge of them at that point, and in Swindon yeah. Town. What was yeah. uh, I think reading your, your your book, Duncan? I think you'd you'd met Big Ron a couple of times. What was he like as a at that point, particular point? He was exactly what you think he'd be like. I went to his house in in uh, in, in Birmingham, his lovely one of these English country houses, and a big back garden. And all he talked about was the you know he had the five sides out the back, you know, and he'd invite all his ex uh, players over and that they play five sides and have a few beers. He, listen, I would I probably would have liked to have joined them, but at the time they weren't really up there in the league, you know, and Swindon Town were the up and coming team uh, at the time. But the, the the problem that arose was that um was that Lou McCary didn't know how much to bid for me and, and of course I was uh I was trying to find out the price and the manager at the time was Owen Hand, the ex Republic Violin manager. And he wouldn't tell me the price. I said, well, you must know that. He says, why do you need to know the price? I says, well, because if you're selling me for half a million, then I need to set my stall out. I says, if you're selling me for 100,000, then it goes the other way. But if, if he, he knew what I was up to. He knew that I was going to find the price and, and get back to Lou and tell Lou the price, which they matched. And, and then the choice was left up to me, which I said, well, it's either that or I'll see my contract out at the end of the year and I'll just leave for nothing. You'll get nothing. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had to show chairman wasn't happy with that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, as, as you're right, it's Lou McCarry at Swindon Town who eventually win the war to, to get you a club record fee of £250,000 for Swindon at the time. And after a bit of a slow start, hampered by injury, I think, um, you went on to become Swindon's top scorer that season. Um, and in the following season, you grabbed 27 goals and 57 games. So there's a bit of a pattern developing here, just in case any listeners are wondering about Duncan's prowess. Um, and obviously you scored against Blackburn in the playoff semi-finals, playing at Wembley as Swindon won promotion to the first division for the very first time in their history. Um, only for that to be uh, taken away uh, a couple of days later when they, they were demoted back to the second division again due to some uh, financial irregularities. But the following season again, although Swindon are battling relegation, you top the scoring chart for them, 23-51. and 51. Glenn Hoddle takes over um, for the 91-92 season. And again, you thrive under that management. 32 goals this time in 48 games, putting Swindon right back into the playoff positions. And that's where things get interesting again. Suddenly in March, 92, Blackburn Rovers, you know, being bankrolled by uh, by Jack Walker, come in and make an offer of 800000 for you from Swindon, an offer that they just couldn't refuse. Were you surprised that Blackburn came in at so late in the campaign, I guess? Yeah, and, and, and until I'll, I'll touch on that uh, later on, I've 
why that happened, but why I think it happened. Um, but I was actually going to Notts County at the time. They were in the, the first division at the time, but they were heading towards relegation. And, and I met Neil Warnock. He was a manager at the time. I went round to his, and the chairman was there, uh, the Notts County chairman, uh, a man called Derek Purvis. And my agent was there. It's the first time I, that I'd use an agent. I'm over the attitude that uh, if you're going to talk to, to teams, that you know, I would turn the tables and just say, listen, you pay me what you think I deserve. I thought because it's such a lot of money, I said, I don't know if I can handle this. So I took an agent with me and and they talked away and talked away and, and I was just sitting on the couch and then all of a sudden the Notts County chairman said to me, he says, Duncan, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to play for Notts County. He says, that's all I want to hear. He says, so we agreed everything and uh, the agent done what he's supposed to do, what you know, what he got paid to do. And I just said, I need to go and speak to my wife, Michelle, and uh, and then I'll get back to you tomorrow. So that was fine. He said, yeah, I understand that. So I went into, I went back to Swindon and then went back uh, into the ground the next day. And Glenn uh, Hoddle pulled me in. He said, listen, there's been a development. Blackburn will come in for you. And as soon as Blackburn clicked in my head, I said, okay, here's here's my hero here now. He's Kenny Deglish. So uh, um, I phoned up uh, Neil Warnock and said, listen, there's been a wee development. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to... Have a chat with Blackburn. He says, oh, oh, money bags. He says, money bags. He says, we can't compare to them, Duncan. So I was, <laughs> I was halfway down the road to, to Blackburn with my agent when uh, he phoned up again and, and made a, another big, big offer to, at the time for me to, to not go to Blackburn. So anyway, I went to, and I met Kenny and he didn't even need to speak about money, you know. I just, I was, I know, just being in the same room as him and I was always going to sign for him. I refuse to believe there was no expletive from Neil Warnock in that conversation. Uh, there, there wasn't, actually. There wasn't. You know, he took it very well. I think he knew when I, when I said Blackburn. And, uh, but I'll never forget the disappointment in Glenn Hoddle's face at the time, you know. You see, you know, you're taking away. We had just got into the playoffs at the time. Blackburn were leading most of the season. And then uh, Mike Newell broke his leg. So David Speedy, my old teammate at Chelsea, was there. And so Kenny wanted us to to team up for the, you know, for the remainder of the season. There was a lot of conjecture, I think, and maybe that still stays to this day. And I think you were kind of touching on it a little bit earlier as well, Duncan, with this one that Blackburn signed you as well. While they were looking for a replacement for Mike Newell, but they kind of targeted you especially because by taking you, you were going to deprive Swindon of, of your goals and that might allow Blackburn to leapfrog them. Well, I find this... Well, I'm just I found it out. I sat one... Uh, we went to... We played oh, Barnsley away again on my debut, um, the week 2-1. And then we went up to Dalmahoy because we had a free weekend. It was the two semi-finals of the FA Cup. I don't know if you remember. It was at Palace beat Liverpool 4-3 or something. A remarkable game. So we were up, uh, we were up at them two and playing golf. And then we were sitting around with Gordon Cowens and the late Ray Hartford, a fantastic man. Um, and, of course, Ray was pinning me on Ozzy Ardilis's triangle formation, you know, the the one at the top, two at the side, one in front and the back four. He was asking me how, how it worked with the two strikers. Anyway, got talking away and Gordon Cowan's let slip, he says, he says, that's the only, because we beat them early on in the season quite easily and they couldn't handle that system. Gordon said to me, he says, we're heading into the playoffs, Duncan, he says, but the only team we didn't want to play was Swindon. So you take 31 goals out of your team and I don't think, I think Swindon ended up finishing up in ninth. I played... What, four or five games or something like that. 
and then uh, just sat on the bench. They seen it through and uh, at Wembley, they beat Leicester 1-0. Mike Neal came back early from his broken leg and got the penalty winner. And that was them up to the, what's the premiership now? You've kind of uh, you touched on that, that uh, Swindon's promotion hopes did suffer and they only scored seven goals in the remaining nine games and they, they did drop out of the playoff spot. Um, but coming back to yourself, uh, you managed to score in your debut again, for, which must have been good. So Blackburn against Barnsley and then Guy made another six appearances as Blackburn made the playoffs uh, and ultimately, like you said, they got promoted. Then Blackburn, um, was, they went on to buy Alan Shearer uh, for three and a half million amongst a host of other names uh, and that kind of brought your, your state Blackburn to an end um, in July 1992 when Willie Miller brought you to Aberdeen for, for half a million. The Aberdeen side that you joined um, had had a pretty miserable season the year before and this was Willie Miller's first steps in management. So did you need much persuasion to join the club uh, and what was the overall mood of the squad like when you did join up? No, no, I didn't have any persuasion at all because... Um... Uh, the Gleesh had, had phoned me and he said, listen, there's an, an offer from Aberdeen and uh, he says, but there's an offer from us as well. There's a two-year contract on the table, but you'll be in the squad and you'll be fighting for your place like everyone else. And I just thought at 29, you know, and I said, no, you know what, then I'm going to go. I've got some unfinished business back there and it was back in Scotland again. You know, I hadn't played in Scotland. So uh, they accepted that offer straight away. Um the mood was quite high because I came there pre-season. There had already been a week into pre-season, so I was a wee bit behind on my fitness. But I enjoyed it and, and enjoyed the signings he made as well. And, and we had a really, really good team. And uh, disappointed at the end of the season that we you know, ended up just uh, playing in Europe. But um, to get to the two cup finals, and um, I don't know, you'll probably correct me in this, were we only four or five points behind Rangers in the league or something? I know we split Rangers and Celtic anyway. We got to the two finals and Rangers won the treble, of course. Um, but it was a it was a good season, a good start for me, and uh, I knew I was going to be comfortable in them surroundings. You come in, Duncan, and yeah, you had a, a great preseason. You scored seven goals in four games, and then you go on to make your full debut at home at Tawdry against Hibs in a three 0 opening day victory. Um, a day that I'm reliably told is my first. Uh, Aberdeen game actually, although I can't honestly say I remember it. Can you remember much about that game? You know, when the the news is on on a on a on, on a Monday evening, six o'clock, and you get the sport. I used to just tape the sport any time I scored. I would tape it, so I had this couple of things, and somebody converted them into uh, well, Brian Henry was at AVC in, in Aberdeen. Brian used to work in the Scotland squad, and he converted them into uh, DVDs for me, a couple of DVDs. So. I'd sometimes sit and watch and the Hibs game comes up every now and again. So I know how the goal was scored. I know how we Scott Booth come off the bench and bent and one in the top corner um, to make it three. Um, and, and a lot of the goals that I've still, uh, I still reminisce on. So it's great to look back on, yeah. But uh, as I said, getting two goals in the start, I remember Wally saying to me afterwards and after all the, everything had died down, he says, oh, good start for you. I says, ah, good start for you as well. <laughs> <laughs> It was important for Willie to get off the ground running, you know, because Hibs are a good team. There's a lot of good talent in their, in their, in their team at the time. I, I mean, <clears throat> you touched on it as well yourself, Duncan. That 92-93 team is is kind of still revered amongst Aberdeen fans, I think, that, that had the privilege of seeing it. it was, there was a, a verve and a kind of free-flowing, very attacking you know, nature about it. I mean, 
what was you'd obviously played by this point under a number of different managers, but what was um, what was Willie's philosophy as a manager like? I think he was uh, he was still learning. He 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 brought in uh, Roy Aitken and uh, I, listen. I remember <laughs> I remember one story. He was fiercely protective of Aberdeen's name. You know, we, we were out at Seaton Park and here we go, ten years down the line, we're still at Seaton Park. So. <laughs> Come back up, walking up the track and training, and do you remember? Um, I don't know if they still do them. The Panini stickers, you know, the football. Ones. I don't know if they still do them or not. But there's a man with a, a camera, and there's a big Panini board, and they had these. They had Celtic and Rangers play. I don't know who they were, pictured at the top, and then there was Motherwell and St Mirren or someone else, and so. He's grabbed myself with me and Jess, you know, he said, oh, you got a picture and that's, oh, right. well, he came walking over and he's looking, he's studying this board, he's looking at all this different, he says to the boy, where's the, uh, where's the Aberdeen player on this board? The boy says, well, I, I, I don't know, you know, and he's probably panicking, he says, he says, wait a minute, you've come up here, you want us to promote all these clubs to Aberdeen players? Take your board and F off. <laughs> Philosophy wise, you know, he was he was fine. He signed big mix, so, so we had two big guys up front, and um that was in the, the days where it was four four two. It was quite simple, really, wasn't it? You know, everybody knew we all played four four two when we were kids. But we had everybody in place. Um and when I look back on it now, you know, I just think what a chance, what a chance to take them, you know. You mentioned there uh Mitsu Pataline was signed along with, alongside yourself. You also had a mixture um, in the attacking areas for yourself, Mixu, Scott Booth, and Ian Jess. It sounds like a dream team to play for as a striker. Um, I think four of you got a combined 83 goals that season, which is just incredible to think about. Um, yeah, can you just like sum up your, your feelings about being part of that team? Yeah, it was, it was just, there was chance after chance after chance. It just, it was a dream for me. Um, you know, you get knock-ons from Mixu, you would hold the ball up. You'd actually see people bouncing off Mitsu, you know, centre halves trying to come in behind him and then just bouncing back the way, you know. And just Mitsu, he just, he's just, I'm sure there was somebody on my shoulder there, you know. And I, I tell you, one of them, my favourite players, Brian Grant used to sit there, clear up everything. Then you had Paul Mason as well. What a fantastic player that one was. And then, uh, of course, Jim Beck came in, Rod, uh, Robert Connor, and, you know, all fantastic, fantastic players, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, disappointed that we never picked up anything, in in, you know, in my in the first year. But uh, certainly, uh, it was certainly something to build on for the following year, which didn't go too well, I'm afraid. Well, we'll keep it on a positive note uh, currently. So, the, those partnerships saw Aberdeen embark on some sensational sprees uh, in terms of goal scoring, including a memorable midweek hat trick for yourself at Firhill in a seven 0 rout of Party Thistle. Uh, followed up on the Saturday with a 6-2 thrashing of hearts at Pataudry and another hat-trick for yourself. Can you remember much about those two games in particular? Uh, yeah, yeah, as I said, I've got them on DVD. Of course, that does help. <laughs> I've got the goals, you know, um, uh, and uh, I remember the Patrick Thistle game, I'm sure it was absolutely lashing down that night and, uh, you know, we just uh, we just destroyed them. We're on a different different planet to them, you know. Um the Hearts game was uh, was one of my favourite heart tricks in that because that was fantastic. Um, you know, we destroyed a good Hearts team, you know, with Craig Levine and that and Graham Hogg at the back, you know. 
when they weren't fighting each other. You know, just, <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was a that was a really good result, you know. And then there's some some fantastic ones, you know. And obviously, you know, getting the hat tricks very pleasing as well, you know. But just just seeing the gap and the you know when you come off the park and, and you're sitting in the changing room and Wooly comes in and not a lot we can say about that, don't you know? It's, uh, boys, you know, um, it's just fantastic. So, you know, you, you get that feeling, the job well done, but you know that's it, well done. I mean, we start again the next day or the day after and then we concentrate the next game. The squad that season memorably finishes runners-up to Rangers in all three of the domestic competitions, um, narrowly losing out in both cup finals as well. I mean, <clears throat> they would have also been your first national cup finals, I think, as a, as a player. I mean, do you have much... Uh, recollection of both those both those days at all? Not to not particularly them. No, um, I remember with the I would have been the League Cup final with Gary Smith on goal yeah. in extra time, and I remember shaking everybody's hand afterwards and talking. I mean, I thought, oh my Jesus, get yourself together here. You know, I was at an age, and then when I'm thinking, am I going to get another chance of a winner's medal here? Unfortunately, I did get another chance. It was the Scotch Cup final, uh, but. Um, you can understand how people play in these finals. You understand how, you know, that you're just watching the Olympics and you see people losing out in medals and that and how upset they get, you know. Um, so that was pretty upsetting, um, that one at the time. And it just makes you trying to be more determined that the next time you come back here and play in a final, you know, you're going to go away with a winner's medal. Moving on to the, uh, to the next season, it's like you say, you know, second place in every tournament still. It's, it's progress, success for Aberdeen on a level. And the next year we opened the season with a, a good start for you personally in front of the newly opened Richard Donald stand against Clyde Bank. And then you got your first goal in Europe away at Valour and Reykjavik. And um, the Dons comfortably saw off the Icelanders 7 0 aggregate, uh, which in turn sets up one of the more memorable nights at Pataudry. Um, after a battling 3-2 defeat in Turin with uh, Torino, the Dons level the tie through a rocket, an absolute rocket from Lee Richardson, and Pedaudry goes into uh, Raptures. We look at this as fans, we just dream, we imagine the feeling. Can you just begin to explain for yourself as a player like, what that kind of atmosphere at Pedaudry is like on a European night? Well, it's just electric. Just Torino were uh, a very good Italian team, obviously, at the time. Um, I remember the game out there because Willie left me on the bench and I thought he was actually quite right to leave me on the bench because I don't, I didn't, I've always been my biggest, my own critic, you know, um, I, I, they needed somebody up front who's going to um, drag them about all over the place, you know. Um, so he went, I think it was Ian Jess and Mixie and quickly went 2-0 up, I believe, didn't they? Uh, but then after that, <laughs> I don't know, we just annoyed them or whatever, but it was constantly Torino. Um, and we did, I thought we were going to hold on to our 2 2, but they got the extra goal and then it set us up for Pitordi. And it was, I think it was raining heavily that night as well. Um, but I remember Lee's, Lee's hit, you know, and it's a rocket of a shot. But did it just clip the underside the bar? Would I be right in saying that? Or? I think so, yeah. But that set us up. But, but they still had that class. And it was at the boy Carboni or something like that up front, um, wide, a wee tiny boy. And he gives Stuart a hard time. Stuart would give me a hard time. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, you know, you think coming off it, you know, full house, 
nights like that, you know, and you, you just picture what it would have been like uh, in the Gothenburg years, you know. Um, fantastic things to play in, absolutely electric. Um, you go home at night and you're watching TV for two or three hours and afterwards you have no idea what you're watching because you're getting your head still thinking about, you know, could have done this, could have done that. And you don't, you only get two or three hours sleep. I mean, you're probably in the next afternoon or something like that for a, for a stretch down or something, you know. So um, it takes it out of you. There's no question about it. You can understand why managers moan about travelling back from, like Stephen would have been worried at the weekend, travelling late back and then going to a place like Livingston, you know. And it does take it out of the players. But certainly, certainly well recommended to anybody who's a professional. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Dons fell to a 2-1 defeat and exited Europe 5-3 on aggregate, uh, followed uh, up by an exit from the League Cup at the quarter-final stage to Rangers, and you missed out on uh, a second successive uh, Scottish Cup final uh, after Dundee United defeated us in a semi-final replay after you'd scored in the original tie. Uh, United, of course, going on to win that um, that cup against Rangers. Did that lead to a real sense of missed opportunity amongst the squad? Always is, always is, you know. Nothing more frustrating when you when you see someone pick up a, out with the old firm, you see someone pick up a Scottish Cup and a, a League Cup. And we wouldn't be the only team to think like that, you know. Like last year in particular in the Scottish Cup, a lot of teams would be thinking, we're Celtic Rangers out, what a chance, you know. Um, but that's it, you can't dwell too much on it, but it certainly, it certainly hits the it gives you that wee bit of, you know, if you're thinking like that and then you're going into a game, you know, you know, you try and remind your teammates, remember how we felt when such and such picked up the Scottish Cup last year and uh, that could have been us, you know. So That season again, um, Aberdeen came runners up in the league, um, but the football maybe wasn't quite as free-flowing as it had been the previous season. Any particular reason for that? Or that's just, I guess, just one of these things? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I, listen, if, if, if I could have... Uh, if I could put my finger on what went wrong, you know, you would you'd be a, a manager yourself. I mean, you just, sometimes you just don't know what you're going to get from players. Sometimes it must have been frustrating for uh, uh, for Willie Miller to see a team do what they did, and then all of a sudden, basically the same players. And I don't know how it happens or why it happens, and that's where the manager earns his money. He tries to dig out the, the you know the truth and tries to find out what's why it went wrong. Um, and act on it, and it's not as easy as, as people think, you know. I've been in a couple of situations myself where, you know, you've tried to change a game and you don't know how to change it. Um, and you sometimes think to yourself, you know, do I need to change it? And why does the striker kicking the ball over the bar and sit under the bar? Why does he keep dropping the ball? You know, has that got to do with tactics? And you, you just rack your head. You think, well, it's not, it's just an individual mistakes. And that season, we just, too many individuals made too many mistakes. Um, we weren't all on the we weren't all on the ball, I'm afraid. But again, for yourself on a personal level, Duncan, it's a a pretty good season. Again, you finished as top scorer, 26 goals and, and 54 appearances across all competitions. And it was during this season that you uh, received international recognition for the first time. Um, you picked up the first of your seven caps for Scotland in a two-one victory against Austria in Vienna. Now, considering that you had not. You know, you'd not come through any of the traditional youth pathways as far as the Scottish national team went. How proud a moment was that for you and for your family to get that, not just the call up, but to actually get get a cap? 
I was in a few squads with Andy Roxburn, and uh, the the two one victory was the the goal. Uh, game was the was the Dutch game on the Friday. It was Holland away, um, but to get my uh, I was in a couple of the squads first goal. And I, I didn't really know how how it worked. I don't know. I didn't know. Did everybody in the squad get a cap, or you've got to go in? And then I found out, you know, you need to go into the park to get a cap, so you have to go into the field. So I was sitting in a couple of dressing rooms when uh, Andy came in and handed out the caps, and I was on the bench and never got on, and then realised then, okay, so you've got to go in the park to get a to get a cap. So when I finally did get on the park, uh, uh, which was the Austria game that you mentioned, um, was that that's when I knew I was going to get a cap. But then you get a wee bit greedy. You think, if I can just get one cap at my age, what was I, 31 or something like that? If I get one cap, I'm quite happy and just put it in a wee frame and say that I played for Scotland. Um, but then you get greedy and then you want a goal. So you get a goal and then you want more caps. And, and that's the way it escalates. And unfortunately, uh, old father time had caught up in me when I wasn't, I wasn't getting anywhere. But I was, I'm, I'm just, I'm so chuffed to, you know, to say that I played for Scotland. Uh, and and score a goal as well, and, and obviously the my main debut, my full debut was the Finland game away. So it started as a road to um, the European Championships in England. You know, moving on from that um, personal achievement of yourself, Duncan, the ninety four ninety five campaign for Aberdeen. Let's not sugarcoat it; it was an absolute disaster. Um, Willie Miller made sweeping changes in the summer to the squad, like Richardson. Mixie Pataline and Alex Lepage left. Uh, started off with a nil-nil draw in Latvia against Riga. Maybe not the worst thing. Let's just take them back to Claudia and finish off the job there. Uh, yeah, good start to the league. A 3-1 win against Hearts, followed by a win over Strandraar in the League Cup. They're uh, self-scoring because, of course. And yeah, things seem to be okay. Then a 1-1 draw, Claudia sees Aberdeen crashing out of Europe on away goals. And this kind of just like sets off this horrendous run of form. Uh, that win against Hearts becomes a solitary win until the visit of Dundee at the end of October. And the Dons then embarked on a run of only three wins in 13 league matches, culminating in a 3-1 defeat to Kilmarnock at Rugby Park, which ultimately led to the almost impossible concept of Willie Miller actually being sacked by Aberdeen. You were kind of in and out with the team at this point due to injury, but can you, as you know, an established player, a big player in that team, pinpoint what was going wrong in the field and what was the reaction in the dressing room ultimately to the, uh, to the sacking of Willie Miller? No, no, I, 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 I couldn't. I mentioned that earlier on about where I was going. I, I spent quite a, a fair bit of it. I remember getting my medial ligament and I was out for eight weeks. And we came back and we played against Hibs and Big Gordon Hunter. It was only 27 minutes or something like that, 28. And he landed bang on the knee again and hand went up. And that was me off again for another six weeks. So I wasn't involved for quite a few of the games. So I, I, I couldn't get the feel and I wasn't in training. So I couldn't get the feel of what was happening. But it wasn't good. But I still think I still think we could have turned it around. You know, I, I still believe with it. When I look back on the team there um, that ended up in the in the playoffs, you know, and when I look back on that team, I think, how on earth is that team, this team doing so far down this league, you know? Uh, but it's football for you. It can 
I think it was Brendan Rogers says, you know, you get all these plaudits, he says, but he's very wary that um, a clap in the back is only six inches away from my boot in the arse. You know? <laughs> so, so you've got to be wary of taking all these plaudits. I just don't know how it happened. You know, I, I wish I could say to you, yeah, this is how it happened. But I, and even if I spoke to Willie, you know, I'm quite sure he couldn't come up with an answer. It just, there's that many individuals involved in it. You know, you've got to get into the mindset of every individual and say to them, say, well, why are you doing that? You weren't doing that last year, but you're doing it this year. Why are you doing that, Duncan? You didn't do that last year. You, didn't, you know, and, and you don't know. It just didn't, uh, it just didn't get going at all. And it was horrible. And, but I was still, I was a major shock when I came in in uh, training on the morning and I met, um, it was Andrew Shinney uh, outside. And he asked me if I had a comment about Willie leaving the club. And I said, listen, I've got no comment. And I didn't know anything about it until we get in. And it's a horrible, horrible feeling, especially if someone like, uh, someone like you know, Aberdeen, best ever player, you know. Following on from that, um, Roy Aiken took charge uh, in his, in his first, first match. Aberdeen got a, a nice 2-0 victory against Rangers at Pataudry with, once again, yourself scoring and you know, things maybe look like, right, we're back on track. Following weekend, though, uh, and you can probably see where this is going, uh, Aberdeen suffered, which was, unfortunately, at their time, the, their most humiliating day uh, in the Scottish Cup, uh, where they knocked out 2-0 by uh, Stenis Muir. Obviously, with a bit of time to reflect on that, how would you how would you describe that? I would describe it as uh, we had Tommy Craig as coach, and I loved I loved playing for Tommy and Roy. Um, I loved the both of them. They were brought up through Celtic, and they were brought up with the ball and the feet on the ground, pass, pass, pass all the time. And anybody who was at Stenis that day would know after five minutes this is not a game for passing. You know, um, they got their goals just looking over the top. And I thought, honestly, we had Ray McKinnon, Ian Jess, all these talented footballers in the team trying to pass on this uh, ploughed field. You know, and it just, it, it, honestly, it just wasn't happening. And I honestly thought that we would have the intelligence on the bench to turn around and say, right, we need to abandon this, this style of football for this game only. You know, because Aberdeen fans went to mind that if you just turn the ball over, yeah, uh, with myself and Billy up front, so you've got a big one and a wee one, and, and, and get support from the and just make it messy because that's what they were doing. They just made it messy for us. They were catching us in midfield all the time, um, trying to play passes and getting broken down. But came in at half time and nothing was said. Just just carry on the way we are. I'm thinking, no, 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 and this is, come on, you know. But you, you're a player, you know, you do as you're told. Um, I would like to have seen in hindsight, you know, that they just gave up the football philosophies for 45 minutes and say, right, we're in trouble here. We need to just keep turning this, keep turning it, keep turning it, keep turning it. And I don't care, you know. Uh, get chances, get shots and goals. And that. Uh, I remember Billy did have a couple of decent chances, but, um, you know, it's just... Um, I don't want to disrespect Stennis Muir. They deserve their win on the day. And so, so, you know, good luck to them. But it was no surprise to me. I think they went out the next round. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, another chance gone for us, you know. And especially after coming on the back of what was a fantastic day for everybody at Petrodi and the Rangers game, you know. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think at that point, you know, the Dons look doomed to suffer the ignominy of a first relegation before embarking on the most unlikely of great escapes. Uh, 
a 2-0 victory against Celtic in, in April gave Aberdeen a, a fighting chance, but it's that double header against Hearts and United that you know gave the Dons hope. Billy Dodds is the hero at Tynecastle, grabs both goals and a 2-1 victory that sets up that straight shootout between United and Aberdeen at Pataudry. Dodds again with the vital first and then Duncan, the second goal, the crucial second goal, fine first-time finish. I mean, what was the mood like in the camp going into those two games and especially that match against United, knowing that if you lose that game, it's curtains? We're going now, yeah. Um, we're obviously pretty nervous, but we're pretty buoyant as well, you know, because we had the, the, the results, I think we... If I remember rightly, did we beat Falkirk the way when Scott Thompson getting ahead header as well? And that was an important three points for us early on as well. Um, but going into that game with the crowd behind us, uh, I didn't know. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I thought once we got that uh, crowd behind us like that, this is it. We were off and running. It's just a matter of getting the goals. It's simple like that. And you go, you, again, we're going back to these tactics things. Your best tactics just put the ball in the net. That's, that covers all your problems, you know. Um, if your striker's on form and Billy and I managed to get the goals, uh, set us up really nicely. And uh, it, but it was a fantastic game. I, it was a great, it was a bit nervy, right enough as well. You know, when they pulled one back as well, but I was confident that we would see it through. But I always say to this, to this day, um, had that stadium only been half full. We, you know, we could have been in trouble, you know. Uh, listen, not, I know you boys are big fans and that you've, you've no idea. We Stephen touched on it there just as now and on the Livingston game just past there on Sunday, you know, how important it is to have that crowd behind you, you know. Uh, it gives you that extra step and your energy. And you can understand how the Celtic Rangers players love playing for the club and they get pushed on that extra with thousands and thousands of people behind them. And I was, that game was like that because it was jammed to the rafters and it was a massive win for us. As you made reference to, then Aberdeen cruised to a 2-0 victory at Brockville the following week. The new boss, Stephen Glass, scoring the second to set up the first ever relegation playoff in the Scottish game. So Stephen Glass uh, scores as a double from yourself that sets up a 3-1 home victory against Dunfermline, again in front of an equally frantic uh, total crowd. I'm sure I probably know the answer to this question, but was there a view in the squad that the job was done pretty much after the first leg or was there any sense of complacency? You as a senior player, did you need to like tell players that the job is not done, it's half done, it's half time, we need to go to um, East End Park with the exact same mentality? Uh, it's, listen, it's the only, and, and you'll hear it from other people and other, other players and managers and coaches, it's the only thing you can come up with. You know, you, you can't look at it any other way than just say this is half time. You know, it's, that's all you can do. So, yeah, we went down there, um, buoyant as well, but we knew it was, it was going to be a hard game because if they get an early goal, they've got their home crowd behind them. Um, but it didn't turn out that way. I thought the only time that I really thought we were safe was half time, to be honest with you. I thought we're looking so much in control and the, their shoulders have dropped in that. And, I think we'd done enough, you know. Um, and after that, it was it was just a matter of seeing the clock down, you know. Uh, if anything, you were that game was afterwards when the big Brian Irvin was uh, walking to the fans and he's kissing his uh, what, what he thought was Aberdeen badge. 
but there's and you Billy pointed out. He says, "What are you doing?" He says, oh, "Just just in the garage." He said, "That's the sponsor. That's the sponsor." The on the other side here, stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a massive relief, and the one that I did, you know, I'd been at a couple of. You mentioned early on with the Huddersfield early stages. The Huddersfield we were battling the first couple of years to try and stay in the in the second division, but to, to, to go to a club like Aberdeen. You know, and, and then to be in that situation, like you say, with the group of players we had as well. Yeah, yeah. I just, and it's just, it's just unfounded when you look back on it. You think, how did that happen? Like, I don't know whether it's you carry on through the season. Okay, we didn't win, but we'll get next week. We'll get next week, and then you hear people through the old saying, you know, um, we're too good to go down. And, well, there's never been a, a better example than that season. I'm afraid you're not too good to go down. You've already uh, described that great feeling of relief um, following the 6-2 aggregate score that, you know, we'd, we'd done it uh, and we weren't going to go down. But how quickly did everyone basically start focusing on the next season? I don't think we I, I don't think, I think we're all just glad to get away from it. You know, the pressures of coming to training every day and the edginess of everything, you know, building up to the games, you know, because it was, uh, it's not as if, I know we played the playoff game, but it's not as if, as you mentioned earlier on, we had Hearts and we had Falkirk and Dundee United. And we knew we'd slip up in any of them. You know, we were just as good as going. So you had four or five, maybe a month of that sort of pressure. Um, so it was, it, was, it was quite hard to deal with sometimes. And, you know, and, and especially in training, because training was toned down a lot because we were just scared of going into a five-a-sides where it's all hell for leather, you know, and people pick up injuries, key players will pick up injuries. That's the last thing we wanted. The fitness was fine. You know, we just had to tick over all the time. We did a lot of passing exercise, a lot of shape work, um, but we didn't go into didn't go into a lot of uh, match shaping up and, 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 and tackling and things like that. We tried to keep everybody as fit as they can, you know, because we were new, we were going to be, we were going to need the whole squad. I mean, in that running, uh, Duncan, the, the critical players, as I recall, I mean, everyone's critical, but the guys who got critical goals were yourself, they were Billy Dodds, and Stephen Glass. Um, he notched a few in that running as well. And it feels like a kind of pertinent time to ask this question. I mean, obviously, Stephen would have been coming through at that point as a young player, but were there any signs to, like, say yourselves, that this would be a guy who would go on to, to become a coach, become a manager? I have to say no. Well, Stephen, he played in the home game. Um, Don Fairman, you're a young lad, but I knew his talent because I was actually supposed to take the free kick that he scored with. And I put the ball down and stepped back and uh, Stephen was standing there and I just looked at him and said, do you want it? He said, go on then. And then just let him step up. I think you do a deflection and it still set us on the way, you know. I was really confident that Stephen, uh, Stephen could do that, things like that, you know. I remember the, the following year, obviously, um, the ball he put in for me for the, for the League Cup final, you know. So, fantastic player, but coach, never seen it coming. That's the, that's the honest truth. And I'm sure there's a few players didn't. Stephen would just get on with his job and, and uh, I wouldn't even see him argue with anybody. He's the kind of guy that you would want to, you say to him, you know, like, why don't you just go out and get a, a, a speeding ticket or something, Stephen? <laughs> go, go, go and do something out of the ordinary. <laughs> go and annoy your next door neighbour or something, you know? Uh, but he's, he is what he was and uh, and that's what he was. And he, for me, I can just speak him as a player. I can't speak him as a coach because I didn't know him that way. Just know him as a player and a person and, and fantastic man. 
I loved I loved having him in the team because he's a, a fantastic crosser of the ball. And in them days, you know, teams used to get crosses in. I don't know what they're doing now. They're trying to walk it into the net sometimes. You know. He's probably not going to get a speeding ticket on that mountain bike, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I need to ask him if I remember him, I'm going to ask him what he ever did with that. So I wonder if he's still got it. Coca Cola bike, wasn't it? That's the one, yeah, that's it. So obviously, the 95 96 season is a, is a much improved campaign, eventually finishing third of the table. But the highlight of the season is clearly the, um, the League Cup campaign. Obviously, a really famous 2 1 defeat at Rangers in the semi final um, at Hamden, and then saw off Dundee fairly comfortably 2 0. In that, in the final, I mean, you'd been in and out of the squad through most of the initial parts of the campaign, and you made only, I think, it was like your third or fourth start, I think, in the final itself. But what are your memories of the final, and, and I guess more importantly, um, as you've already indicated, the goal which Stephen Glass whips in a great ball for you for? Well, first of all, we we, we trained at Petordi the day before, and Tommy Craig had walked past me, and uh, he said to me, uh, "Scott Booth's not made it," and I just looked at him and said, "No, that's a shame." <laughs> yeah. The mindset for me was, listen, I'm getting on. Scotty's been a play time to play in cup finals, and I, you know, I was disappointed for Scott, but I was delighted that you know I knew I was going to get the chance to start the game because um, I never started the semi final, and you know, and and all the boys done so well for that. Um, so, but we were, were resounding favourites because they were in the uh, first division at the time as well. Um, I, I just, I just remember the feeling. Of going to the game that you know we had big big players in our team. Um, Paul Kane told me a story once uh, uh, when Paul I used to room with Paul when he came to Pretoria. He told me when he was played Aberdeen and uh, was it, you boys all know was it League Cup final or Scottish Cup final? I can't remember. Um, but he said we were standing in the tunnel and we were waiting for Aberdeen to come out. He says and just you know we were all sort of youngest players. And uh, waiting for Aberdeen to come out, and they wouldn't come out, and the referee's banging the door, and he's banging the door, and they wouldn't come out, and they wouldn't come out. And they just made us stay and waited there. But it was a good two or three minutes. He says, I think the game kicked off a wee bit because of them. Um, TV was going off the head. He says, then the door burst open, and he says, uh, Miller came out, McLeish came out, Rugby came out. He says, and they just towered above us. And he says, uh, he says, Duncan, we were beaten right in that tunnel. Right before they came out, we were beaten. So that was a big thing, uh, and that, but and, and I felt that feeling when when we walked out uh, with the Dundee team. You know, I, um, I just thought we were head and shoulders above them, and that's the way it panned out. With Billy getting the goal, and, and just after half time, Stephen whipping an early cross, and I'm getting ahead to it. And uh, I think the game was was just about it was over then, you know. And I remember walking back, and the sheer Wonderland story. Uh, Song came on, you know, and it was, it was, and I'm thinking back to the time that was I was whaling up when I lost the league cup, you know. I'm thinking, right, oh, great, and hopefully we can, we can see this through, you know. And there was two lads injured, Jim Duffy, and I can't remember the other centre half, the Dundee when they went for the challenge with me, and it going on and on this sheer wonderland, and then we Billy walked across the, the centre circle. He says, "You're the only guy that plays for this team." <laughs> <laughs> It was a great moment for me, and I just, I just loved it, you know. Uh, had a great time. The league campaign that season just kind of petered out. You know, we finished third, but we weren't close enough to range ourselves to challenge. I think it's fair to say at that point, the disparity in finances and just caliber of player at that time was really starting to tell in the old firm and the rest of the league. 
the Dons, however, made good progress in the Scottish Cup, making the semi-finals and conceded a late goal to Hearts. And you then grabbed yourself an equaliser, uh, forcing the game to a replay, only to then be undone by an time winner from Alan Johnson. It kind of sounds like your Aberdeen career has been a story of what-ifs when it comes to the Scottish Cup. And unfortunately, that's kind of carried through until until present day. Um, it's still a trophy that eludes us. Um, can you just like, kind of recall your kind of feelings about uh, missing out on another chance to get to the final and a chance to win the trophy? Yeah, it's, you know, we had a good players behind us and a couple of really good chances to win it, you know. And, and then, I, <laughs> as I shouldn't be saying this, but when I came to Inverness and that, and then he became coach, um, and then I was a reserve coach. And, and then being with the Inverness team, he went down and won the Scottish Cup final. You know, uh, Ryan Essen um, was there, you know, um, in goals. And Chris Ryan was at Aberdeen when I was a young, he was a young keeper coming through, you know. And uh, he took like, great pleasure. And, uh, he says, have you got one of, one of these, Duncan? I said, no, I haven't. You know. So maybe just uh, close out the 95-96 season uh, from a, a personal level, your point of view, your appearances uh, to be begun to slip. I think you made 18 starts and 18 appearances from the bench, returning seven goals. Any sort of feelings from yourself that that might be the beginning of the end of your Aberdeen career? No, 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 no. I didn't for one minute, though. And I remember having, a, having it out with Roy Aiken, um, I think Billy and... I remember rightly, Billy and Dean went about 13, 14 games without scoring. Uh, and I just had enough. And I went in and asked him, you know, why? You know, and he's just, he usually wants more movement than that. I said, I move. He says, every time I come off the bench, I seem to be scoring a goal. Is that not enough movement? So, but then I just, I, mean, I didn't fall out with Roy. And they were probably, they were probably right in that way. I was, I was, I was quite comfortable, you know, Sitting on the bench, and I was, I was aware of my fitness that I couldn't drag defenders about all over the place. But I was quite confident in my own ability that if we were on top of a game, um, and I didn't have to didn't have to run about too much. And if people can get the ball out in the box, that I would be there or thereabouts. Because I was always, I was always one for playing between the eighteen yard line and the halfway line. Anyway, you know, I, I was not. I'm not a great. We say. We signed Billy Dodds and played the first couple of games. And I remember the ball going out to Stuart McKimmy and we played two up front, me and Billy, and Stuart's looking to put the ball down the line and Billy nods and the away goes down the line. And the ball gets cut back, crossed in, and I get a shot off and then I get a header off. And this carries on for two or three times until Billy's practically on his knees in the halfway line and he turns to me and he says, do you ever run in the channel? <laughs> I said, um, I said, do you ever see a, do you see a set of goals out there? I said, I said, why would I run out there when the goals are over there? He's <laughs> a lazy bugger. But, uh, nah, I, I, I enjoy playing with, uh, alongside Billy. And I played a few times with Dean as well. And I became very good friends with Dean as well, you know. So, uh, yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, you're probably right. But as it was, at the end of that year, Roy had offered me another, uh, was it that year, I think? offered me another year's contract um, so I accepted it and that was me going to be a bit player a situation he told me afterwards um, Big Alec had gone to Motherwell and he said there was interest in Motherwell but he wasn't keen on me going to Motherwell and I wasn't that keen on going myself to be honest with you um, so Inverness came up with a, a coaching a youth coaching job and uh, and 
playing part-time as well because they were part-time at the time. So yeah, as you allude to, you, uh, your Aberdeen career comes to, a, comes to an end and you join Inverness Caledonia Thistle. Can we just take a moment to reflect on your playing career at Aberdeen? Who was the one player you most enjoyed playing alongside and what would you say was your favourite goal that you scored in an Aberdeen shirt? I, I like playing alongside Mixu. You know, I think uh, I think we got on well. As you mentioned, in that first season, we got a lot of goals together. Um, and then we Billy was good to play alongside. Did all your running for you, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> they allowed me to concentrate and uh, in and around the box. Favorite goal? The we mentioned the one, the Dundee United one was a massive, massive one for me. You know, um, I still I see it sometimes on that on that DVD I've got, and I think, what are you thinking hitting that ball first time? You should have taken a touch, steady yourself. Because uh, I, I hit it sweetly and it went in. There was also an overhead kick against Dundee United. Um, it came off, chested up, and I managed to overhead kick it into the into the net. So that was a that was a favourite goal. But um, yep, one of the ones, and any goal against Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> right answer. Bonus points have been awarded. So of course, Duncan, you eventually make your way back to Petodre again um, as assistant manager to Steve Patterson in December of two thousand and two, when you both make the move back from uh, from Inverness Cali. Now, both yourself and Steve, you'd been heavily linked with the Dundee United job before coming to Aberdeen. I mean, was there much persuasion required from the Aberdeen board to you guys to make that move? Because at the time, Inverness were flying. You guys were doing really well. Obviously, you'd had the famous victory over um, Celtic in the Scottish Cup. And the Dons were not in a particularly healthy state at that particular time. I think the problem, the problem uh, Steve showed me um, a, a text from... Thompson at Dundee United. I think it was about a month before, you know, wanting him to come through, that you just want him to be the manager of the, the club, you know, and inside my head, I was, I knew there were problems at Aberdeen. I never said it to him, but I was thinking, hoping myself, that he was just going to hold on a wee bit longer and this job might become available. As it was, he didn't go to Dundee United, didn't go, go down and speak to him. And there was a bit of a, a ruckus about it because then Thompson had said that he never offered him the job. Steve had to go on to Delhi and say, listen, not having somebody accusing me as a liar, you know, but I, I was pleased that he didn't go because it's not, although, you know, if he'd asked me, I would, I would have went with him, but it's not, um, it's not a club I've got any affection for, it's, it's, it's not the, the area that I would have gone down to, to move my family to, you know, so, no, um, and that's not been disrespectful than the United, but then a wee while later, the I was coming back. I was actually down at Billy's, uh, down in Glasgow, wee dodges, and my wife and kids and that. And we were coming up at Loch Lomond, and Steve phoned me and he said, you know, just going down to to speak to Aberdeen. He says, um, I need to know your thoughts. Are you, are you keen? I says, well, you're asking me to come with you. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, we'll go and speak to him and uh, and then let me know how you, you know, how you go. Of course, when I got back, I got a phone call from the Inverness chairman, uh, you know, to come down in the ground, and they offered me that job there. I had to wait and see what Stevie had decided. But I was in a bit of a predicament because although that's what I wanted to do, you know, it's the job that I'd always want. I didn't want to be a manager of Aberdeen. I would love to have been the coach, and this job was just about to come up. But you know, having spoken to Steve, there's a lot of deliberation. We were just sitting in a car in Elgin before uh, Keith Wynas came through to meet us. And I could see in his eyes he wasn't quite sure, you know, and I explained to him that 
in my mess and they're going to offer me the job there. And he says, what are you thinking? I said, well, I'm thinking that if I don't go to Aberdeen with you, you're not going to go. That's my thoughts process, you know. Um, I think he wanted me with him there. But I said, if I stay in Inverness, you might not go and you might stay in Inverness and then I don't get a chance to be Aberdeen. So for me, I says, uh, if you're going to go to Aberdeen, then I'll be with you. But there was, there was reservations. To be a manager at Aberdeen Football Club, um, you have to be 24-7. And Steve, uh, Steve likes his, his weekends. Once he's had football out of the way, he wants to forget for a day and a half, you know. Um, but unfortunately, as all managers and coaches find out, you can't. You've got to be on the phone Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Monday night. And you're chasing players. You're, you're talking to scouts. You're talking to players who might be available. And it's 24-7. And it can be pretty draining on you know on on managers i know the penance is you know you get a big salary uh, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stress comes with it well looking back on the the season and a half uh, that yourself and steve steve had at aberdeen it's probably fair to say it didn't work out the way either of you would have liked it to but you know sort of mitigating factors um, it's pretty clear that the the task was slash the budget get some younger players in do you think in a way you uh, not not you two individually picked for it, but that whoever took that job was kind of set up for failure because that you know the, the expectations are high, yeah. but it's not the level playing field versus the previous management team. Yeah, I think yeah, I think when you look back on it now, it was that way because I mean you know, what Steve had worked out. He's a very clever man, Steve, with figures, and he'd worked out that we'd save the club about seven grand a week in wages by getting rid of Bisconti and, and, and guys. There's people who go into the canteen there, and this is just unheard of me for Aberdeen. Um, go into the canteen, there was four French boys in the corner, all playing cards, speaking French, and other people, and there was groups all over the place. When I was there as a player, the directors would come in, you know, Dennis Miller would come in, Ian Dahl would come in and sit beside you, have lunch, you know, and it's, it's, it's the club that I remembered when I went there in trial when I was 18 having lunch, everybody comes in together. There was such a, and even as a player, you know, like we were, uh, we were all like that. We're all together, you know. And I, I, I'm not blaming foreign players. We had, we had some great foreign players at our, um, our club, but you needed to be together. And when we went in there at first, there was such a split. It was, it was embarrassing. Um, and then you, you get them all out, and by that time you've run out of time yourself. And, and listen, here you've made your own mistakes as well. Steve made his mistakes. I've made mistakes. Um, Osher Williams was with us. So, you know, you've got to put your hand up, you know. And when I was told that I was relieved of my duties, and I shook uh, Stuart's hand, Dennis's hand, I just said, thanks for the chance. It's a job that I'd always dreamed of. I just wish it could have finished, uh, you know, it could have been a bit better than it was. But it wasn't that way. And, it's maybe something, maybe something happened because they kicked on a bit with, with Jimmy Calderwood afterwards and that. So Touching on that, you like still mentioned there that you kind of were tasked with cutting budgets and whatnot. Jimmy Calderwood comes in next and the first player who signs is Scott Seven from Parks, which presumably meant that they were getting, you know, a bit of a, whatever money you guys had saved must have been like going back into the budget at that moment. You look back on that with a little bit of like, oh, well, if, if we had that kind of money, things would have been different. Aberdeen must have opened a rowie tin. 
he should, uh, there's no doubt about it, they should have given Steve a, a bit better of a chance than that, you know. Um, but as I said, you know, the, the, the troubles were brought on our, you know, ourselves by, by things that had happened. You know, hindsight's obviously a wonderful thing and had things go well, this would probably be maybe the most rewarding chapter of your football career. But given the way it went, um, do you have any regrets about coming back to Aberdeen as an assistant, um, just purely for the way that it ended? No, as, as much as I loved, I loved everything. The only thing I didn't like, which is unusual for me, was match days. Because as a, a coach or a manager, and I mentioned earlier on, you really don't know what you're going to get from your players. You think you're going to get something that is exciting and good, and then all of a sudden, for that 90 minutes, you go, that's not the same team. We've just beaten a team last week 3-4-0, and now this team does this exact same players. And, you know, that's that's the frustrating thing for a manager and a coach. You know, it must be nice to must be nice to have a, a team, you know, like Rangers have just won 40 games, you know, and, and they got the first defeat. And incidentally, that season, um, Steve and I were there, we went down to Parkhead midweek um, with, honestly, with youth players, injured players, players playing at a position, and we beat Celtic 2-1 with David Zerrilla getting a goal. And I think that was the first time we'd be beating a park end for about 70 games or something like that. Because I remember sitting in the Martin O'Neill's office afterwards and, and Martin O'Neill came in and gave Steve a slap in the back of the head, you know. <laughs> he coming up here with a youth team and he said, hey, we've beaten Juventus in Barcelona here, he says. And they had, they had all these top, top players in their team and that. It's just, who knows football, who knows. And that was that was one of the few memories that I could take for coaching-wise, you know? Yeah, it's a, it'll be a quiz question if anyone can name like, the Aberdeen lineup that played that night. Oh, wow, honestly. It's just, there was a wee guy called Murray McCulloch. There was a tall centre-half. Craig Higgins at centre-half? Higgins, you're right. All right. Um, I realize, God, it was just, I mean, we're just only you know, two or three in the bench. I would, I'd love to see the, what the team was compared to what their team was. Can't immediately remember. I think Brian Prunty scored the equaliser. Drillich turned on the turbo chargers and sprinted past Paul Lambert. <laughs> it wasn't too hard at the same time. <laughs> Duncan, we'll wrap things up here. Um, it's good we do it on a positive note there, at least. Listen, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on. It's been a really insightful and uh, chat with you. Obviously, you made, on the playing side, 194 appearances for Aberdeen. You scored 79 goals in total, and you left with one. League Cup winners medal and a runners-up medal in both the League Cup and the Scottish Cup. And I think for fans of a certain generation, you know, you were the first real true goal scorer that we saw in that role and you were the, the, the last one we saw until probably Adam Rooney turned up at Pataudry a few seasons back. I'm going to ask you one last question and this is a question that we'll ask all of our guests on the show. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? It means everything. Uh, it means I've changed my allegiance when I was brought up a Celtic fan. I'm now an Aberdeen fan, and, it's, and I have been since '92. Uh, my best man at my best man at my wedding uh, used to come through, and George Cadu, you'll not remember George Campbell, used to play for uh, he was from He plays for Aberdeen um, for a couple of years, so that was his mate as well, and he used to come through all the time. So it means a lot uh, to me, and I, and I love looking out for the scores, and I'm just hoping and praying that they'll. Uh, I'll get that Scottish Cup one of these days, you know. They were unlucky not so long ago against Celtic and played really well. But it means, uh, for, for me, it means everything. It's not just that. There's it's a big connection for me to the to the city. Lots of friends through there. And, and I'm hoping that 
maybe in a couple of years and decide to stop working as well. Like, you know, we want to want to go back to Aberdeen and live and uh, I'll be a season ticket holder and sitting there watching the Dons again. Great stuff. Duncan Shearer, thanks for appearing on the ABZ Football Podcast. Stand free. Thanks, lads. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us and please remember to like, subscribe, follow or whatever on your podcast plate of choice. Join us next week where we'll cast our eyes back over the Dons trip to Baku and our SPFL Premiership fixture at Tynecastle. We'll also preview the return tie against Carabag and our home fixture in the league against Malky Mackay, oh dear, and his Ross County side. We look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was sponsored by Hop Shop Aberdeen. Visit the guys in store at the West Hill Service Station or online at hopshopaberdeen.com to browse the finest selection of craft beer in the northeast of Scotland. With over 500 individual lines, you're bound to find something to suit your tastes, and the guys at Hopshop Aberdeen are more than happy to provide you any guidance you might need. Remember to use your discount code ABZPODCAST on any online order for the remainder of the 21-22 season and receive 10% off your order.